Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 14 of the Bass Life Podcast. In this episode, we talk to professional bass jumper and true ambassador of the sport, Christopher Dugues McDougal. Be sure to check out the show notes. Three, two, one, see ya. You're listening to Bass Life Podcast with your hosts, Randy and Brian. Hey, welcome to the Bass Life Podcast, dudes. Right, right. Good to be here. Yeah, we are recording in your music room up in Wingen, Switzerland. Have you named it yet? Uh, yeah, Chaos Platz. Ah, uh, I saw the, the sign. sign on the door there. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Keep it looking rough on the outside and nice on the inside. Right. That way maybe people don't know that there's expensive stuff in here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Valley Bass Band will have to get back together. Yeah, absolutely. So Summertime. tunes once it gets a bit warmer in here. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder how much how warm it'll get in the summer. Maybe maybe too warm, I reckon. But do, we'll, um, do these windows still open? Yeah, they open, and just uh, the general public can see us, and that's the only problem. Oh, <laughs> mm. well, then we we'll can't jam we'll out. See how we go. <clears throat> nice, Dukes. Why don't you, uh, for any listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with base jumping and skydiving, um, could you just give us a little background on you and where you came from and how you got into the sport? Yeah, uh, I was brought up in a little shitty suburb of Keysborough uh, in Melbourne, Victoria. And led a very normal life, uh, but started getting into skateboarding young and surfing, uh, and a little bit of snowboarding, and, and just uh, went for one skydive just to see what it was like. And it was awesome. <laughs> so it was something that just blew me away, and I wanted to try it one more time, see how, how good it got. And it just kept getting better and better and better and engulfed my life. And literally within a year, I'd completely just gone from a normal life into the crazy adventure that's still going today. Um, and then I found bass drumming pretty soon after that, which I didn't really know about, but uh, that seemed really cool, and I wanted to get to know that sport as well, and just sort of fell into it with the what people would call the wrong crowd, but it ends up being the right crowd, right? And, and it just went from there, pretty much. So that's a very short version of it. Yeah. When did that start? Yeah, December '96. Not to, my... not to date you. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm def- <laughs> definitely old. Yeah. Um, December '96 was the first skydive. I'll never forget it. And uh, I blacked out in freefall when I first jumped out. So um, having the video to, to check that out afterwards was pretty cool. And then I did my first base jump. I think it was around May 1997. Uh, that was quite interesting because I just went to do uh, ground crew with the guys. And, and I get there and I've got no idea what's going on and, and they hand me a rig and say, you want to jump? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so that was my ground crewing experience was uh, straight up there and off. And, and I actually didn't realize that we got it filmed years later. I found that, oh, just literally a couple of years ago, I found that video again uh, when I was digitizing everything. And yeah, my very first jumps on there and it's actually, I have the exact same style as I do now in my, in my launch that I did then. So nice. I haven't had to change too much, which is good. That's good. So. It, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, we got busted by the police. My parachute didn't open probably because they tied the brake lines on. Um, so you can't steer because it's so low over water. And then I just, like a leaf, just leafed into the water. Parachute all over the top of me. Everything it shouldn't happen to you. And then a boat come and got me. And then the cops got us. And then but our friend who, well, not a friend even at that point, it's just one of the guys there who ends up being Shane Sparks, one of the legends of our sport. He managed to uh, talk his way out of it for us all and then there's another guy who I won't name because I think he's a APF judge now 
but he uh, he was there as well, organising everything, and it was yeah, it was pretty rad. It just that blew me away, and that gave me the uh, gave me the want to to go and learn it all properly. Uh, so we went back to our mentors that we were doing ground crew with, and they said, well, yeah, I think I because I only had maybe thirty jumps or something like that, and, and they're like, right, I, now you get your two hundred jumps up, and you, you do a lot of crew and stuff like that, uh, and then we'll we'll go for the first one and. And that was that the first real one, you know. And I, that's I did that in 1998. So you went through like a ground crew progression of a uh, uh, sort of learning to jump. Yeah, I, I never forget it because it was it's really it was really cool. It was very bandit. So just even our our drop zone was a small drop zone, but it, they were very welcoming to basically anything, which is cool. But definitely at other drop zones, you couldn't just go and sit in the TV room and watch base jumping. You had to go into a back room, <laughs> lock the doors. And and then you could sit down with the one of the people there that you know was willing was, to show was you willing to show you even yeah and it was and and that was freaking cool and I never forget this first video I saw was really early on and I didn't you know, from memory I don't even think I knew what base jumping was hmm. and uh, this I could say him now because he's retired and stuff but the John Garlic one of the legends of Australian skydiving and um, I did a, a B roll with him which is one of the jumps you do to learn how to after you learnt to skydive, you learn how to get better through these B-rolls, this Australian table. And he took me on this jump that just blew my mind. He broke all the rules of what you're meant to do, and I had the best jump ever. And he basically he got down and um, signed the logbook but didn't describe the jump for me. And I was like, oh, shouldn't he debrief me? And shouldn't he do this? And they go, do you know who that was? I'm like, no. He goes, dude, that was John Garlic, you know? <laughs> As I had this legend of legends in the sport, and um, so I was super blown away by that. And we became friends afterwards, uh, till now. And and he always said to me from that from that jump, my my goal is to teach you to be better than me. And I've taken from the very start of my jumping career, which wasn't even a career at that point, I took that on board. Have never forgotten it, and that's what I take to all my students now. But but what uh, what what got me talking about that was yeah, we went to this back room. And we saw this video. He showed us. He goes, "You want to check out something cool?" I went to this video and watched these him and another guy, uh, Pete Fielding, who's an absolute legend of the sport of base jumping. Um, and it's a video of them jumping off the Rialto, which is like the main building in Melbourne. And this is ninety, early ninety seven, when they'd just done this, and and they had uh, turbulent air. So I think. Jono landed in a tree and Pete Fielding smashed out in the middle of the intersection that to cut away from the tree and jump in the vans they blocked all the intersections off and there was chaos everywhere and I'm just like holy shit this is unreal this is like proper proper renegade stuff and and that just blew me away and then so then I instantly I think I only had I think I had maybe 19 jumps at the time or something and, and I was like wow this, this this is unreal and, and then so I started asking more questions and, and I'd already just met my best mate Wildman by then to intertwine it a bit. So we both got frothed on it and asked more questions so they'd show us more videos. And there's guys jumping off these cliffs in the Blue Mountains in Australia and like eating bananas as they jumped and doing all this crazy wacky stuff. And then one guy would do it like a gainer and it's like, holy shit, this is mind-blowing. And that's and that's literally how we got into it or you know, myself and... So I just started asking more questions, more questions, more questions, and eventually they trusted us straight away, pretty pretty much, um, and went and started doing ground crew for these guys, and and it was just awesome, yeah, really really cool. So I was very lucky that I think they saw our enthusiasm, 
but also saw that we weren't complete dickheads, I'd like to think. Mm. <laughs> uh, and we've taken that all the way through. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's awesome. The sport is kind of uh, regulating in that regard, like if, you know, because it's so small if you, uh, if you are a dick, like people find out. Yeah, you know, especially back then. Everyone knew everyone. It was, mm-hmm. it was amazing. It's definitely changed now. Definitely a lot right. of faces I don't know. And um, I'm sure it happened to the generation before us too when we came in. You know, um, people these days don't respect all the hard work that got done by people in my generation and before my generation. They think it just got handed to them on a plate. And, and that's a little bit sad, but that's also based on I mean, it's, that's yeah. the prog- I mean, yeah. that's the evolution. That's of just it. the evolution of the sport growing. And yeah. there's big giant wooden skis over the, uh, some of the hotels where you're like, wow, these, these guys skied on two by fours. Yes. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. And I've actually, you know, in maybe 50 years time, people are going, wow, they even used parachutes yeah. <laughs> back then. So that's just part of the, the sport, but it, I'm really glad of when I got into it because the, it was cloak and dagger for sure mm-hmm. and it was really uh cool stuff and i've collected a lot of footage photos and, and articles from the early days to trying to get a, a documentary made of the history of australian base jumping and there's some of the old school footage you know like the first hand cam back in 81 and all this stuff wow. it's just mind-blowing what these guys did to get it to a point where we came into it which has gotten to the point where we're helping other people now but i, I was blessed that i got into it when it was still fully renegade mm. But it was also hitting a safety point as well. So we had, when we went to buy our gear, because our mentors made us buy gear, we weren't allowed to borrow. You, know, you show commitment, you buy gear. And it's, that's really important, I feel. And we had the choice of three sets of gear. And, and like everyone does these days, we, we chose the one the that cheapest was one. prettiest, that had the nicest <laughs> colors, and that looked the most stylish at the time. And it was three Velcro rigs, so it was a... It was a I'm trying to remember now. It was a Perigees or no? Well, that's what we ended up getting. Yeah. That was the main one. That, but the first one was an Urban RV from Pooh Smith, one of the, another legend of Australian skydiving base jumping, and they had a pooster in it. So it was Australian, the first ever specifically made base gear in the world, and it was from Australia. Um, and then we had this old ratted out Velcro rig that was handmade. I think it was, that might have been by Hickey, another Australian manufacturer, uh, and that had a cruise light two two eight in it. And then this other one, which was a perigee, and um, and and had a thing called a canopy called a mojo in it. Yeah, I've jumped the mojo. Yeah, yeah. well, it's the best canopy ever. You know, yeah. and and so literally, we they get they didn't help us at all. They gave us these three choices, and we picked the prettiest one, being <laughs> wild man. And and that's that's how we did. And we couldn't even we couldn't even press a button to get um, to get the rig. So we had to ask around to get references to get permission from the own, the manufacturer that they would actually build us a rig, that we were solid guys mm-hmm. and that we deserved a, a rig. And that was cool as well. And then, of course, we get the rig and we see the packing video. And there's, before the before the start of the packing video, there's five minutes of awesome base jumps. Mm. And that's I've never seen the packing video. I just played that over and over and over again <laughs> those five minutes. And it was my life's dream to go and jump every single site on that packing video. And I did eventually which is pretty cool so but i've still never seen that packing video to this day. <laughs> yeah you can you can learn to pack on youtube now yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my first rig was a perigee 2 with an ace 240 in it yeah and, nice uh, yeah it a, i it loved it rig. i mean i did yeah. i did all my most hardcore jumps on this mojo like mm-hmm. i had i think i had 600 jumps on the mojo i did all my most hardcore base jumps on the perigee and because of our limited knowledge in australia we didn't 
we our mentors had maybe 20 30 base jumps maximum and it wasn't like now when you can get 20 30 base jumps you know like even in, in one of our courses or a weekend yeah. or is it was um that that was a year year or two's worth of work and it was all urban bandit stuff so um so we were we were forced to make our own decisions the whole way through which was awesome so because it was a a dangerous sport still then but you you had the opportunity to make it safe through your decision making and your knowledge so and whether it was correct or not at the time but um at the time i didn't we were thinking for ourselves and i, I saw this ring and i was like we can do this better <laughs> which <laughs> wasn't the case but <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's what that my mindset was like well if i'm going stone i'm putting a hacky sack on this so it feels like skydiving so so i did i got a hacky sack sewed on um and then with the line stows i didn't understand this freestowing i wasn't a rigger it was early days and I was like, I'm going to put stows on this, you know. So I got I got stows put on, just with super light rubber bands. But so in my mind, because basically it's such a mind game. So in my mind, when I stowed those lines, they were absolutely perfect. I didn't I didn't like the free stowing, mm-hmm. and I got stiffener plates put on my extra stiffeners put on my top and bottom flaps. And so I'm not a rigger, never have been, probably never will be. But we're instantly made to think for ourselves, mm-hmm. and that was that was cool. So I did all that stuff. Obviously, um, yeah. Eventually, the line stows came off i didn't need them anymore the hacky definitely got cut off uh, once we started going stowed more and more and and the stiffeners were are actually better off without the stiffness <laughs> but on the rig but but it was cool to to be able to make those decisions back then mm-hmm. that, that were your personal right or wrong decisions yeah. and you know what though back then no one really died mm. you know there was there was the odd death but yep. no one really died because you're forced to make smart decisions yourself Nothing was handed to you, right. and you always had the choice. And Australia was super hardcore, like especially still is. It still is, but definitely <laughs> right. back then. Areas are tight. Yeah, but the, but wearing padding was not cool as well mm. back then, and helmets <laughs> and far out, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I always wore, I always wore knee pads from memory. Space jumping, there's no rules. Yeah, yeah, no rules. You can skydive, it's, right? Yeah, and that's it. It was so relegated, and now, um, you know, I never wore a helmet on my first base jumps at all, and it was only until Slim. Uh, one of the, the absolute legends of basic. If if this, he was still here now, the sport would be twenty years ahead. Oh, wow. um, that he's that good at all that. But he was the one that brought. But he goes, he's just been in America. First Aussie to hit a thousand jumps, and way back in the day when that was a hell of a lot of jumps. And um, and he's like, guys, what what are you guys doing? You're not wearing helmets. We're like, yeah, helmets are not cool, you know. <laughs> and, and he's like, no, they're really really cool. And so that's he was the he was the guy from from my memory. I think I was already wearing helmets at the time but mostly just to put a camera on right um so <laughs> not much has changed, things changed. <laughs> <laughs> camera but, stabilizer yeah, yeah. yeah um but yeah he he's the one that really is like guys wear padding you know because he'd been to the rest of the world and he'd seen how easy the rest of the world is to jump compared to australia so so that's when um yeah i had big skateboard knee pads because i was skating all the time anyway but i remember i hurt my ankle once and uh crawled out nothing broken so I bought one ankle brace and I hurt my other ankle <laughs> just afterwards. <laughs> and I bought another ankle brace. Yeah. One, one step at a time. Yeah. But all those days, yeah, you, you, you erred on the side of caution because if it was like any sort of antenna jump, we would, you would never jump when the, the wind was down the wires. So you get up to the top, you do all that climbing, the wind was down the wires. You climb down and no wind. And I remember one time we climbed down and there was no wind. It was like, Oh, it's dropped off, so we climbed all the way back up again, oh. 450 feet. It's, the wind was exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, so we climbed down, but we were that frothing, we were that keen, that, mm-hmm. and that's what we do. But we also respected the rules that our forefathers and our mentors told us, like never jump down the wires, um, never jump uh, in turbulent conditions in the cliffs. 
Um, and like places like Bungayan, you always be careful of this sort of win, this sort of win. And, and you respected that and you didn't break those rules and you stayed basically safe all the way through. I mean, while, I remember Wildman broke his ankle once, but that was a hard landing and that shit does happen. And But for the most part, we walked away from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jumps. Like wow. More than we ever, ever jumped in. And then you see the people that would jump in marginal stuff and eventually they get hurt or killed or, you know, something bad would happen to them. You always... I, we always learn to open the correct way for that for the jump. So, you know, there's certain jumps where you don't want to be doing a half a second delay, one second delay. It's, it's way more dangerous. So sometimes you take it down. Hmm. Like Bungonia is smarter to take it all the way to six, seven seconds rather than <laughs> open it five seconds. This pre-tracking suit stuff, because that last second is where you get just safely enough away, hmm. you know, like by two meters from the wall or something. And yeah, like literally it was just like that. But we, ignorance is bliss as well. But yeah. but at the same time, you, you were it was freaking dangerous and it mm. felt dangerous it felt scary and deadly every time mm-hmm. um and so we we were pretty smart like that and we, we took those precautions and that's what got us through contrary to what people think about myself and wildy um you know everyone judged us early on because we were pretty loose guys as well at that point we were super young but but when it came to the jump we'd um we'd actually be safe so i mean <laughs> one, one more time i remember this is when we this is when we both looked at each other and said we're going to be fine in this sport it was we're climbing this antenna. It's a power tower. Beautiful place in Melbourne. And our, a good buddy of ours, Dean Mustard, was climbing up. And he was trying to impress a girl that was down, a beautiful little girl. Young girl, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Not a little girl. Um, this legal yeah, legal super, age girl. Super, yeah, legal yeah. age girl. Super cool chick, anyway. And, um, but uh, super hot. And he's trying to impress her. And we get halfway up this, this power tower. And um, it's a headwind. So And it's super overhanging and that. But it's a headwind. So meanwhile, you're like, nah. Nah. We're going down, and and Musto went up and and uh, went out and jumped into a headwind to impress this girl, and and he's uh, it was a headwind, and he's he opened on heading, but he's brake locked, so he couldn't get one of his brakes off. Oof. And he he was lucky; he landed as he landed, his canopy got caught on the the power tower, so he was on some barbed wire, but he so he's fine. But it was it was exactly what we got told not to do um, in case something like a brake lock happened yeah and it did and, uh, and i ended up getting the girl uh, <laughs> it, was, it was just your turn yeah it was just my turn but it was like yeah that's where me and wildy we looked at each other and said you know we'll, we'll be fine because if we keep making smart decisions like this uh and keep walking away and, and we'll be okay and of course we've had been lucky as well over the years but for the most part i've taken that on board all the way through even more so now that i've seen so much shit go down so i've seen how how important do you think it is having a, a partner like a jumping partner because i've noticed like me and randy sam and nate you and wildy i find a lot of the guys that are, are really good have somebody that they can bounce those ideas off of yeah i think it's hugely important to have a partner in crime um actually sad saddens me a lot these days when i see um people like fred and vince or, or sam and nate or you guys and because i don't have that anymore like, mm. yeah wildy's my best buddy and, and we still jump together we still do heaps of stuff together but I can't call him up every day and go, right, let's go do this mission. Mm-hmm. You know, we're on opposite sides of the world. And, and I took a more advanced role in the base jumping scene, uh, taking to wingsuits and all that stuff than mm-hmm. he, he did. So, um, but like with Coombs in that, you know, when I see you guys raging and stuff and doing cool shit, you know, especially Fred and Vince, some of the really cool oh, stuff wow. they do. Yeah, um, yeah I like, I'm stoked. And that's what me and Coombs, he would have been like if, mm-hmm. if he'd still been here or me and Ted or all my, all my jumping buddies are all gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, doesn't I don't envy you guys. I'm stoked, obviously, for everyone. But it does. It's like having a buddy is super important, and I miss I miss those days. I, I don't 
I can't really call anyone up on the phone and be like, hey, let's go do this crazy mission yeah. in, in base jumping. Yeah, yeah, so it's just, it's changed. Well, once I marry, you know, <laughs> yeah. Swiss princess somewhere here. Yes. I'll move in downstairs. Sorry, Randy, you're yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to bounce stuff off each other. You give each other confidence. Um, you check each other. You keep each other in check. You know, uh, you, get in, you do a lot more cooler stuff. When I say cooler, maybe illegal. Mm. Uh, urban jumps with a buddy rather than on your own or someone you don't know that well. Because you, you, you get a you're in it together, yeah. yeah. You got a partner in crime, and, and that was huge again for me and Wildy. Uh, up and you know, up until I moved to Norway and America and, and changed everything around a bit. But me and Wildy in the early days, yeah, we were absolute partners in crime, and it was freaking amazing. We'd, I remember, you know, we'd go to the cliffs together, and we the first time we went stowed, that was, that was a massive deal. And that's that's one of the things that's changed in base jumping now is the learning curve is so steep, but our learning curve was very very gradual, and. To go from handheld to stowed was a massive, massive deal. And I remember it took us... 30- it was, I was going to say, it wasn't your third jump. No, it definitely wasn't your third jump. PCA, handheld, yeah. all right. Yeah, yeah, it's not like it is uh, now. And- my first jump was handheld. <laughs> but you had no one, to, um, no one to guide you on this. It's just the way it was. And yeah, we'd practice. And a lot of the stuff I learned from my early days, I take it to the courses that we run now, but I take it in a way that we can give them the information and make it make it the progression safer for them but also quicker but it's the same stuff that we learn so before every single jump off the cliff and it's also we were pretty much only jumping cliffs and antennas and buildings so there was no bridges really mm. um and i remember before every cliff we're like this time we're going stove this time we're going stove we do a thousand checks thousand checks <laughs> and then we do one check and throw it and it's like oh, that would have worked perfect you know <laughs> and then we go right let's just go handheld this time we'll do it next time so i don't know maybe took us a year maybe to go stowed or something like this wow. it was crazy because it was that freaking scary and we had no mentor by this stage i mean i did my first cliff at seven jumps in the blue mountains and we had no real mentors everyone was going handheld it was rarely rare to go stowed and um i remember the first time we actually went stowed we said right this is it this is, let's just do this do this and i um can't remember who went first me or wildy we had, had some video and i know i i ran off and instantly, the second I left, like as my foot left the cliff, I went to grab my pilot suit, hand flat on my head, not like it's not like you meant to just got on with your thumb on your head, just flat on my head, like I'm rubbing it. And then I had to hold it for three seconds in that position until I pitched. But I had it, mm-hmm. I had it, finally had it. So that, the hardest part was over because it's just a mind fuck. Right. Uh, and then I threw it and it opened and no problems at all. And and it's still a mind fuck to this day. You know, three. 3,800 jumps later, and it still scares the shit out of me to go stowed. Um, and then while he goes off, he reaches for his pilot suit so hard that it turns <laughs> 90 degrees facing the wall. Oh, wow. And he, he has to pitch out and straighten up. And, but again, because of our the training that the, the guys had told us from their limited knowledge, no matter what position you're in, keep those shoulders square to where you want to be. And, and so he did that and opened on heading, and it was fine. But that was our first stowed experience, and it's... That fear has not left me ever, and that's why I do my still do my thousand pilot suit checks before every single jump. Yeah, <laughs> so I'd imagine you've seen the uh, decision making criteria and um, uh, sort of that you know jump analysis has changed over the years. It has, it has, it hasn't, it hasn't or become it, more it, like more detailed. Maybe the people are yeah. people are some some are just as cautious, some are less cautious. Um, it's killed some people. You know, mm-hmm. And it's helped a lot of people. So, so it's a broad spectrum, and it still yeah. comes down to that individual. But I think you come into this sport 
now, and it's hard for me to say because I'm, I've been in it 20 years, but the way I see it, there is so much knowledge and information and it all works. You've seen a thousand videos where it works. Um, you see people jumping everywhere and it works. You know that the gear's safe, it works, the knowledge is there and stuff, but we never knew if it would work. Mm. And I think that was the difference. We're still hoping it worked every time. It was still a life and death um, thing for us. Mm. And it is for everyone, for sure. Right. But it was more so then. And we were... Yeah, because there's just not as much exposure, if any, to it. And there was a lot of cliff strikes still in the Blue Mounds. There was a lot of bad landing still, but, but no major, major injuries, really. So um, so that was... Um, no worries. Yeah, so that that's probably one of the differences uh, to that. But everyone is still their own pioneer. Yeah. So it's still scary as hell for everyone. But these days, if you do it correctly and either get a mentor or do a reputable course, then you have got someone there to tell you all the way through uh, why, why it will work or why it won't work. And, and that's something we had to completely work out for ourselves is, will this work? If so, why? Okay, yeah. this is not going to work. Why is it not going to work? And then we'd, we'd adapt that. So, so the good thing is now that we have pe- people like us that can actually help the next generation out. And it's up to them to respect how much their life is worth so and I, I joke around but I'm deadly serious when I say it, when it, with my students I'm like, remember you can always get new friends but there's only one of you ever so, mm. so check your shit and do everything correctly so you can be the last man standing after all said and done and I think I think that's it's, it's really important it's, our sport is so simple um, but it has very simple consequences as well mm-hmm. and uh, it's important to, to recognize straight away yeah, that's something uh, Sam brought up in uh, our recording with him. Is uh, you know he wants to be like the thirty-year base jumper. You know, like no one's really saying that. You know, like yep. we don't, there aren't no one's really made it there yet. You know, so that's kind well, of well, the they, they have, yeah. they have. There's heaps out there, but you won't know them because no one remembers the history. Yeah, yeah. So I always use uh, like Mo Valletto, uh Rick Harrison, you know, Marta Empanati, uh, Todd Shubotten, um and Halliwell, you yeah. know, all these guys are well 30-year veterans and pioneers of the actual sport, not mm-hmm. not like us coming in at an easy time when things Mountain get Mountain skydiving. Yeah, like real, real stuff. And Anne was on my very first jump. And uh, I so I just had some friends in Hawaii that showed me how to pack, and then I just went to the bridge, right, in, in Idaho. And uh, I, I didn't set up my handheld you know, the bridle correctly, and I, I didn't know Anne. You know, uh, for anyone listening, Anne invented the tailgate, among other things. She's true legend total legend um, yeah so i look at her and i'm like uh does this look right to you and she's like no <laughs> drop it and so i just drop the pilot sheet on the ground and like she gets me set up all correct and uh correctly and uh, uh so i climb over the railing jump throw roll down the windows uh inconsequential landing and she lands like right next to me after doing like a double gainer or something and uh she goes uh it's great how many uh jumps off the bridge you got and i was like one she's like uh how many base jumps you got and I'm like, one she's like oh you're you're coming with me and like uh for like three days she like adopted me and a and a friend i was traveling with and uh put us through a mini mini ground school so it was she, she lucky she's, to have her, she's so helpful to the whole community and i mean she's Guardian pretty much angel. Yeah, yeah she is and she was for me as well she was for the whole of australian base jumping um and she's flying planes and everything now mm-hmm. it's just awesome but she she um Dwayne was over in Dwayne Weston, who's still I consider the best base jumper of all time. Uh, he passed away in two thousand three. Um, yeah, he was in America with Slim and stuff, and 
they early days they brought Anne Halliwell over to to check it out, and they took it to Bungonia, and they were all doing six second delays, and then she took it down to a seven, <laughs> and just for safety reasons, and yeah. she explained this stuff to these guys, and she looked at the Australians, and this is pre my time, and um, she's like, you guys, what the fuck? Because like, <laughs> Australia was so isolated from the rest of the world, they were making it up as they went along, separate to the rest of the world, and. So she came over. She was a big influence on Dwayne Weston and then also Slim and, and all those guys from that era, which is just a couple of years before my era. And, and that's when things started to change and, and, and move to a safer direction. <laughs> she so, pollinated some good ideas. Yeah, yeah. She really, because we were all on, all those guys were on backyard gear still and the pooster. And the pooster was like, like a saver, I guess, you know, like that sort of performance. It was very high performance based canopy to be mm. going into. Tight. Um, tight land there sort of probably can compare it to the dagger back in the vertigo days it was that style of parachute but trying to go into landing areas where you had to go vertical almost and and that's why when the fox came out the fox was such a massive deal uh for base jumping in australia it opened super hard and had a horrible flare and didn't fly forward very far <laughs> perfect <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's like the osp now is is a better version a more advanced version of the fox it's like just all the characteristics are a bit better but the fox was the one and i mean i was on the mojo for most of that era but, which is awesome as well but the the fox really um from basic research back then which is now apex that was the canopy that just rocked australia's world yeah it was incredible so and then you know when that come out with the vents that was that was another level again you want you can hit a cliff i can still hit it keep your parachute flying and literally, that that would happen, you know. I yeah. saw Pete Fielding hit uh, three cliffs in twenty four hours once, and, and it was just awesome. Like he's just a living legend. He just recovered from a punctured lung as well, from memory. And uh, yeah, I must tell the story because it was epic. I was just a young pup, and and for those that don't know, Pete Fielding is probably in his early sixties now, or almost sixty, and just a total legend. And had to stop base jumping because he at work he got a one ton uh, like water pump dropped on his arm and crushed his arm super badly and uh, so that's actually what stopped him in the end it wasn't anything else so mm-hmm. he's my absolute hero in Aussie base and anyway so we're at Bungonia and super gnarly jump jump that I won't even do now um, <laughs> and, and uh, anyway yeah he, he jumps off and has a 180 and smashes in the wall a couple of times a line twist smashing the wall and then and then lands down there super hard landing and hurts himself as well and it turns out he put one brake line through the ring and one not through the ring mm. uh, ages later. Anyway, so he, he gets out. He's got, I said, Pete, you cut your arm. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. There's eight stitches he got. He's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we went to the hospital, got it stitched up. And then we went to another jump called the Grand Canyon. And it's just, <laughs> you can't see, you literally can't see the landing area. So Bungonia is the safer of these jumps. <laughs> and you can't see the landing area. And so anyway, we do the jump. It's a beautiful jump. You fly for ages and then you land on this sort of, piece of rock with a five meter six meter cliff up vertical and where a creek sort of is but it's very very tight like it's it's you don't even land there anymore like it's super tight anyway i come in and at this stage i'm filming and stuff and, and been getting into camera work so i land and pete's there i was like how'd you go pete you know he's like well jimmy jimmy landed right here and uh, jimmy freeman who, who's also passed away was a really really good base jumper. he goes jimmy landed right here so i tried to land where jimmy did and I missed it by five meters. Unfortunately, five meters was up there. <laughs> and he'd hit this wall. He'd landed five meters up the vertical cliff and fucking bounced down on the ground. 
So we walk out of there. It's a solid, solid walkout. Yeah, because all, all the Australian jumps are not too bad of walks in, but they're hard walks out. So it really makes turns you into a man if you get hurt down there because you got to get out. And there's mm. no, it's so illegal that there's no rescues. You self rescue no matter what. Um, anyway, so we did that, and then we went straight to another jump called Horseshoe Falls, which so I opened with Jimmy a, a year earlier, and we went in there. And it's super gnarly. Like it's, it's. I probably wouldn't do that one now either. <laughs> a beautiful <laughs> jump with a nice big waterfall right next to you. Um, and then you fly out, and you there. You're landing at this point in time. There's a sandbank about, I don't know, it's, it's small, way smaller than this room, but just massive rocks and trees around. And, and at one point, the landing area is only as big as this little coffee table, like a steering wheel. Uh, would depend on the 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 creek and how that worked with the floods. And anyway, Pete comes in and just he, he's not. 100% ideal on the canopy at this point <laughs> and just smashes into this clip. Oh, actually, he's doing, yeah, he was doing good. That's right. He's doing good, but he clips his canopy on one of the trees just coming in. And they're Australian gum trees, so they're super gnarly. And he ends up just hitting this, just swinging around and smashing into this rock and dropped him pretty far into the ground, but he hit a puddle. But the puddle was like a vertical puddle. So Ooh. he never even hit the ground. He just dropped into all this water and managed to get out of there. And then this walkout is even more brutal than the other two. So this is this just it's just like he's rolling the dice. Oh man, and he just loved the carnage and the chaos as well. Yeah, I got I mean I got a thousand stories of Pedro. He, he's incredible. <laughs> that that's one of those instances to show that how Aussie base was mm. back in the day. You know. So. Yeah. So um, Farrell had a few questions for you. He's uh, he's been a great um, I guess uh, uh, resource for this podcast. He's always giving us feedback and giving us questions to ask and. Uh, he uh, he asked us. Uh, you already kind of touched on it, but the history of Basin uh, Australia video. So you mentioned. Uh, hopefully, I'm not busting you out on any projects or anything. But, uh, <laughs> anything you want to add on that? No, but, I mean, I'd I'd love to do it. Still, I've got all, the hardest part. We did nine min, nine months of full time gathering information from everything, and unfortunately, that's at, at the end of that period is when I left Australia. That made it really hard to do, and then we tried everything to get funding. For, for the TV networks to companies and, and no one would touch us at all. Yeah, and I, yeah. so wow. it was really, really difficult. And then um, I got a mate of mine, Tobes. He, he said he'd direct it and his mate was going to produce it. So who has a proper production company? So that started moving forward and then that dropped out. They had a big falling out and mm. he took, he was, he had all the opportunity, the producer to get everything for us to make it happen. And that, that dropped out and then that's basically been that ever since. So, it sucks because it's the, the Australian history is freaking awesome. It's really a Dogtown and the Z Boys mm. sort of documentary, but that made the Dogtown boys. And no, no disrespect to them because they're absolute legends. They're amazing what they did, and that's where base jumping is now. But it was all that plus tons of carnage and death, and even and real breaking and entering and real missions, and so it was a, a heightened version of that. So I mean, I even wrote to Stacey Peralta. Uh, to see if he would produce and he wrote back because it's super cool yeah because nice. he does all that stuff but it's it's such a niche thing that all these people are looking at from a business point of view and it's it wouldn't make any money yeah mm. I even I contacted the guys that made um, All This Mayhem from the um, Pappas Brothers which is an excellent documentary that's super hardcore uh, really hardcore as well and um, I skated with those guys Not I didn't know them but we we're all in that group that go to all the skate spots together and get kicked out from everywhere. And these guys are crazy. They're amazing. But uh, that documentary is amazing. And I wrote to those guys as well. And But no one will touch us. So it's sitting in a holding pattern for a very long time, unfortunately. It, the history is crazy. I've got a 41-page timeline. I've got, as I said, the photos and the video archives are crazy. And the stories are 
Really crazy. I mean, and there's little feuds as well. Some people refuse to get on it uh, to be a part <laughs> of it. Like Farrell's one of them, you know, because of his his history, uh, which is a colourful one as well. And um, yeah, so there's, there's, it's all there. If I had have stayed in Australia, I would have probably done one interview a month and, and just slowly built it up over time. But the director actually uh, wanted to take it in another another direction as well and make it super professionally made but it's not that type of documentary so um unless i'm there i want to be a major part of it as well and so it's still sitting on the back burner but hopefully i get into a financial position or a position of freedom work-wise where i can go and actually do it and it's it's getting there so yeah it's always in my mind because of the stories i mean there's this one story of the early days where they're jumping out of these moving trains and there's video and photos of all this so there's they've got this moving train and it's the old trains that you could force the doors open mm. and there's a knob on the door and um, so the two people are forcing these doors open and you only got a tiny it's only 30 foot 40 foot high bridge you've only got this l- over water a little river not even a wide river and you only got a very very limited time in between the, the stand posts to do this jump and this is before my time this, <laughs> this didn't last long by the way yeah. <laughs> and the reason's coming up right. <laughs> and, um, and it's Freaking crazy! So they have got these um, single skin rounds. Uh, uh, sorry, single skin reserves that they use and call the mosquito, which actually ended up killing someone because it wasn't TSO'd as well. So long story short, it was a it's bad, bad idea. Bad idea. But they, they had these single skins they were testing and pioneering themselves. And so they get they pass this one, you know, the one pillar, electrical pillar, then the next pillar, and then bang, you had to go at that instance. So you go and you fucking throw the chute, or someone holds the chute as you jump out. It, it um and you're impacting the water at the same time as this thing sort of trying to open sort of it's it's like hilarious you know but that's what that was their fun thing that was what you do so you could just do laps on this thing and then yeah one one time this the they weren't concentrate got blase about it pretty straight pretty quickly as as base jumpers do it's a natural condition of a base jumper is to get, <laughs> to get complacent. complacent yeah um yeah so they did that and the one of the lines of the parachute wrapped around the door so the video doesn't show the rest of it but it shows him jumping out basically almost almost or actually hitting the water i can't remember and then getting bounced back up and it just cuts out as he goes through the electrical uh pylon mm. and yeah and apparently goes through two of them and that the second one severs his lines and um drops him onto the freeway and gets hit by a car Ooh. oh so that's a hell of a way to go out <laughs> and he lives no no he lives oh. yeah. he, and he I just assumed he was dead after yeah, all that. No, right? exactly. And I won't, I won't mention any names, but he, he refused to be a part of the documentary because he's now a captain for Qantas. He's a pilot for Qantas. Yeah. And, uh, but his brother hates him. They hate each other, so his brother's <laughs> going to spill old beans on the story. So that's a great part of the, the thing as well. That sounds like Aussie base. That, and that's Aussie base. And there's so many stories of this. You know, like a guy with a fully plastered broken leg climbing the Amiga Tower. They had to put ladders up for him to get over the the tower back in 81 and then he'd, he'd climb the 1400 uh, feet in in with a full plaster cast on you know and then landed and got his crutches and went home and why yeah just because <laughs> that 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 was it that was the sport and and um yeah he he owned and run the drop zone for many years an absolute legend yeah. all these guys are, they're still jumping now they're still owning the drop zones now i'm Try not to mention too many names in case they don't want to be, but they're all the people. I think that, you've got the record right now. For yeah, number of name drops. Yeah. right. They're they're all the all these people. You know that they're the people that took us in and and let us be us. So if you fucked up, they would hundred percent let you know. But before they had to let you know, you already knew. So that was that was a school of thought, and, and I've taken that on board now with with, with my teaching. But um, they let you be a, a kid, a young fella, and go and 
discover for yourself within reason. Mm. And, and it was huge, you know, whereas a lot of people were like, no, 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 you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. And we're always like, fuck, you'll do it or what? Mm. And these guys, these legends were the guys that were the original gangsters of all this. The original fuck you. Yeah, the original. <laughs> and, they, and these, I mean, these guys were all Australian champions. Mm. These guys were all the best in, in the, the whole, the only... I think the Prometheus, they, those guys, that team, they, they won the world championships, I'm pretty sure, or at least got second, but I'm pretty sure they won. And These are the original badasses, mm-hmm. and, and they were the ones doing all the, the hardcore stuff. And I mean, all these badasses, they run the APF now and stuff. It's great <laughs> to see that, all that progression. And, it's, you know, but, and one of these guys, I mean, on his 2000s jump, they, they deployed him straight out the door. And then, and they, you know, so he opened straight off the door and they went and built the speed star. So he's like, fuck that. So he cuts away and joins the formation again. Uh, you oh, know? Wow. <laughs> like these guys, you know, real, real renegades. I mean, we came into it in a safe time and a, a time mm. when there's already rules. Now. These guys, I, I never forget the, the, the generations before us because they're the absolute legends, you know, the Rick Harrisons and, and all those guys are just loose and loose at both ends. So party, proper partiers. Mm. And but also proper jumpers as well, but yeah, that's the doco. I, look, if anyone's out there listening that wants to fund it and help me get this done, it would be incredible because it's an incredible story and yeah. it's still going. I mean, and then you know after after Dwayne died, it was it was on the up and up and up, and that that um, that era of we were highly regarded as the most the best and most hardcore jumpers in the world. And I remember Dwayne come back; he went to the Tombstone Challenge. They used to have competitions back in the late nineties in. At, in Moab and he went there and there's like the odd person like Avery Badenhop and that were doing a gainer or something like that and Dwayne gets to the edge of the cliff looks over turns around facing the wall and does this I don't know what it was exactly but like a, a back flip full twisting double front or something and opens and you know and lands hits the target and lands and everyone's just like what the fuck and, just- and you know Dwayne's got a lisp and he's got He's very effeminate. He's got his little female-looking bob hair. And, <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck was that? He's like, what do you mean? That's nothing. You should see what they're doing at home. You know? <laughs> you know? And, of course, he was, he, he yeah. was taking the piss. But, but that reputation and just started preceding the Australians. And, and we all, I still live like I never dispel a rumor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and so it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, and it was true because in, in the fact that our stuff was so hardcore. I remember going to Moab the first time and finding a little rock to land on. Just just because I could, you know, just being a dick. <laughs> yeah. like, got all this desert and I might come and touch down. But and it, it hit a point where it was like that and then it just crumbled. Mm. And then, you know, Dwayne's death, uh, 2003. Uh, Nick, Nick, uh, Dr. Nick's before that, uh, he's American, but the year to the day before that and then Dwayne and then Slim the year after. And then it just toppled. So we had that, that sort of five-year spell. I mean, it hasn't stopped really, but mm-hmm. that five-year spell where... You know, and I'll forget all the names, but Big Gay Steve and Darcy and then Coombsy and then Jason Fitzherbert. And it just, it just, the list just went on and on and on. And we just started dropping like flies, you know, mm. and it's a real eye opener for the Australian community. And, and really the only people still jumping that are left is really me, Wildman and Feral. You know, that's the only three that are still, and Wildy's pretty intermittent. But um, as far as, and, and I'm generally just six months of the year now, I try and take a break now, but uh, Farrell's probably the only one left of that era that's actually still proper jumping. You know, even Gary Cunningham had to stop with with his injuries and mm-hmm. stuff. And so it was the death of an era in a way. But it was it was a good thing as well. It's like you, there there are limits. You know, there there are boundaries and there are laws of gravity you need to get an understanding for. And it just 
it started getting out of out of control in a way, but not not badly, not like the wingsuiting got. Right. I was going to say, how does this equate to? Yeah, it was different. Twenty. Yeah, uh, was it sixteen? It, sixteen was a rough year. Yes, yeah. sixteen was. Yeah, I mean, there was a forty dead. I think I lost twenty friends. So, yeah, I had at least year. thirteen on the list that year. Yeah, so like, that's crazy, and that's that's changed the sport. That's changed the sports history for sure now. Yeah. Um, if, you know, the first few deaths is still worth it. Not that year, but the years before, it was always worth it. It always was. It's always that person that fucked up, that person that did that. But shit, you know, the aftermath of um, the friends dying is one thing, but the aftermath of, of the families and the mm-hmm. kids, uh, you know, it affected my relationship with my wife greatly in, in 2016. It nearly, nearly broke us up and mm. um, just because I dealt with that shit 10 years before. So I was on a different level of numbness, I guess you call it. Yep. Uh, whereas I just, if my friends come home alive each day, awesome but i every day we go out i expect them all to die and if they come over live that's that's a bonus so that's how my mentality thinks now with all the deaths and it's a shit way to think but it it's been proven so many times that, right. that it sort of tweaked me a bit like that and that's the you know the wing sitting just got out of hand there's limits and we, we found them mm-hmm. in the sport the sport found them and it's detrimental it's been detrimental to our sport uh in a lot of ways as far as the legality side of things go moving into the mainstream, yeah. turning it into a sport. It's it hampered it. It's still a lifestyle, and that and that that's history repeating. So that's happened all the way through. So the early El Cap days in, in Yosemite, it was legal. You know, people don't realize it was legal, and it was the jumpers that fucked it up by mm-hmm. partying and rubbishing and shitting where they eat, essentially. Yep. And um, so that was the first account that I, I recall of that era. And then another one, um, Jan Davis. Uh, was it the very high impact death that she was on a jump, which is an illegal jump, and the it was a protest. Right? It was a protest yeah. jump to show that jumping from Yosemite from El Capitan can be done safely and it should be made legal. And they didn't put the right people on the jump, so he he put his missus on the jump. She had, as far as I know, two base jumps. They borrow gear, shitty gear, because they knew they were going to get the gear confiscated. And and I've seen the video. I've got the video there. She, I watch her. She's got a leg throwaway. So uh, to the layman, you normally throw from behind your hips, uh, BOC, bottom of container. And she had a leg throwaway. And you're always used to going to BOC. And, and on the countdown, she didn't check her gear once. So the countdown's from 10, and she doesn't check her gear at all. And she jumps off, pretty tragic. She does her jump. She, you can hear she tries to find her pilot chute. Uh, because she's got so little jumps, she doesn't have the knowledge to, to stay calm and be aware. And the you can hear the crowd cheering and cheering, and she's going lower. They're stoked, you know, but she's panicking. And then right at the end, she obviously can't find her, and she gives up. Right then, puts her hand across her face, hands across her face, and just impacts, just full, full Ooh. noise, you know. And the video is brutal because you see it, things go off in different directions, and and it, it made me really angry in that respect because they've just put the sport back twenty years rather than put the right people on the job. You know, there's, I've got some of my best friends. I can't get on events and jobs because I'd love to have you, bro, but you're too fucking loose and I can't trust what you're going to do. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's also people I really, really don't like in the sport and don't like their attitudes and stuff like that. But they will be the, the people I will put on events because mm-hmm. I know that they're going to be turn up, do the job and do it safely. And, and that's how it should be looked at when you're doing high-profile stuff. And, and that's what pissed me off with that El Cap stuff was that just put there's so many better jumpers that could have been on there and done it right and this sport it would be legal maybe in Yosemite now mm-hmm. and, and that's happened 
over and over and over again. Um, just people not respecting respecting the, the the limits and the regulations that are there to try and work towards it. And that's where Slim was so good. He was the first guy to really put a suit on and go to these meetings dressed as a businessman. Mm. And he, he, you know, we got all the Patronus Tower stuff was really about to start and take a turn for the better and really open up legal base jumping all over the place. And um, unfortunately, his accident uh, mm. killed him, but it stopped it. But we were about to hit China hard. So we'd just done, he died in China on that first event because he didn't follow his own, the, the rules of complacency know. either. So, um, and that he just packed like shit. You know, that's what killed him, a shitty pack job. Mm. Uh, and that's what's hurt a few people since. Um, but just pack good all the time. But this, without him, uh, if he was still alive, the sport would be well ahead again now. Mm-hmm. And it just, history repeats. I just see it all the time. And my goal now is to try not to let history repeat. Yeah. <sighs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So, so speaking of events and uh, fuck-ups, well, I'm just going to sprinkle that right there yeah. and sit back. Yeah. Take it away, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the events, it's really hard to, uh, you know, you can you can always backtrack or look look at things after something happens and go and pinpoint all of those po- the situations the, the red flags. Up, oh, that's probably not a good idea. Up, oh, that's probably not a good idea. But looking forward, you're like, ah, oh, you know, this is that, and should be all right. It's tight, but okay, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, show up at uh, Benidorm and was that thirteen or fourteen? Fourteen. Yeah, show up there. Not on the not on the list, but you know, been hanging out in the valley for a little while, and just kind of gave gave him the sad puppy dog look, and Some, like, somebody here vouched for you. Yeah, I was like, so Dukes, <laughs> can you uh, can you vouch for me? Yeah, sure, no problem. Just don't fuck up. No problem. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Side crosswind. Borrowed gear. It was Bam's gear. Bam's so rig. 20, yeah. 20 so it was a, feet so it was a 225 yeah. instead of a 245. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, didn't know what I didn't know. Was too dumb to realize oh, this is a this is probably a bad idea. <laughs> Jumped off, and as I was trying to turn into land, was getting blown towards the building. And so I buried the toggle, tried to swoop over the... Uh, the uh, restaurant roof and swooped over most of it. <laughs> yeah, I made it almost all the way over till my till my ass shattered one inch granite from fourteen feet high and rolled to the pool deck below. And that was, uh, I think, when I look back at it, you know, like you're talking about, you know, incidents changing things. Just personally, I was lucky, and we we talk about this quite a bit sometimes. Um, I was lucky that I made a pretty serious mistake early on that kind of, that didn't kill me. Because like that first 200 jumps, everybody's just kind of a roll of the dice of, we're we're not sure if you're going to make it, you know, to 200 jumps without either hurting yourself badly or or getting killed. And luckily that, that kind of, slapped me in the face and let me know, hey, yeah, this is serious and you you can't be screwing around and, you gotta, you gotta really take it, you know, take it serious. So yeah, I got lucky, and from then on, I was a uh, perfect base jumper ever since then. So <laughs> nice I, I really blues. appreciate that. that. That's all your fault. <laughs> and it's, it's, it is like that, though. I mean, I, I have the foresight now to predict 
what's going to happen <laughs> in the sport. You know, there's a five-year cycle and you watch people go in it and they're either going to get hurt, get killed, quit because they're bored because they push too much in a short mm. time or become really good solid base jumpers. And, and you see it over and over again. I'm in my fourth cycle, no, fifth cycle now, so my own cycles. Um, and again, it's about learning what, what has happened in the past and, and making smart decisions based on them. So what I'm seeing now is a lot of people reinventing the wheel and making the same mistakes over and over again. And it's just no need to do that. The, re- the reason I feel I'm still alive is because I learnt from my friends dying and my, mm-hmm. the accidents of my friends. So I, I really did. Because what people don't know about me that, that aren't close friends, I'm shit scared all the time doing everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in social situations, just being in public, like just not even the sports side of things, just life. I'm a fucking very scared person. I could easily just hide in a padded room, which were, this, this music <laughs> room is a, a bit of a padded room. This is my <laughs> sanctuary where I can come and just, just chill. But, um, you know, it's a choose. So I, I learned from the mistakes. And then you've got to know when to stop stuff as well. So in 2004, 2005, me and Coombs, we were jumping as a super tight team mm-hmm. all the time. And we were sort of, you know, Louis, Jean-Albert, did the proxy wingsuit flying in 2003 um, and that was incredible that changed the sport for sure um, it was incredible mind blowing so me and Coombsy took that to the cliffs of Norway and we started doing that but tracking and there's no there's no room for error in the tracking and it was fine because uh, Chirag was very steep and, and we just did it over and over again and we got closer and closer and closer hit the limits there and then, yeah, he went and died that following year up in, in Troll War which we don't know what happened but hmm. he obviously he was in it put himself in a bit of a position at some point and then maybe something else happened that caused the accident but um, I kept going after that proxy tracking and I still remember I've got footage somewhere I need to find um, of the jump where I stopped proxy tracking um, and it's a jump where I had it was, uh, it's called 4.5 and it's a wingsuit only jump and I went there I was like we can track this so we went and opened it up to tracking and and I was in a no I didn't have the best jump or the best track and I was in a no-pull situation for a long time, what felt like a long time, probably 10 seconds at that Ooh. point. Yeah, maybe maybe longer. And I just relaxed and breathed. I realized where I was in. I was like, fuck right, eh? Just, just relax, just breathe, and just, just do do what you got to do. And that's that's also when I learned that to be calm in high-pressure situations the most because mm-hmm. you can't change the outcome if you're panicking. You can only change it if you're calm. Anyway, I did that, and it was the sickest jump ever as well. You know, it was like full full throttle through this thing full proxy tracking is like not vertical proxy tracking I was, this is full horizontal proxy tracking mm-hmm. this is bravant of tracking right. to a certain point and then anyway I landed and I said look that was the fucking best thing ever and now I'm done <laughs> never yeah, do that again because I saw my path I saw where I was going and the hardest part is with everything in my life with all my other addictions as well it's I'm full throttle or nothing it's very hard to pull back mm-hmm. and so that was that was a real hard thing uh, for me to learn but once I learned back, you actually changed changed what I was looking for on my base jumps. Then my periphery opened up so much more, and it was um, it really helped me a lot. It helped me with my aerobatics. So instead of doing five flips off KL, now I'll generally just do one slow one. But that one slow one is just beautiful, and you see the world. Whereas you do five, you're just seeing flashes, and mm-hmm. and the proxy tracking was a bit like that as well. You're just seeing a small part, but you can still see just as much of that fast stuff if you're just ten, twenty meters higher. Or give yourself that out, you know. I'll use that as an example. But if you're just that bit further away from the edge of a cliff or a bit further away from that tree or all this stuff, it's um, you're gonna you're more guaranteeing to stay alive for sure. And but the hardest part is going from driving a Formula One car, 
back to a Volkswagen. So you're stepping still driving. You've got to learn how to make the Volkswagen fun again. You're stepping. You're stepping. I wouldn't. I try not to say stepping back, but you're stepping sideways. Like try and try and find other ways. Because bass drummers get bored real quick, and this is what kills them. They're like, oh, you better do that. It's boring. Well, if it's boring, don't do it. Try something else. So I, I started feeling like the hairs in my arms move or the, my shoelaces to see what they were doing during jumps or just, just feeling other parts and other emotions and you know moving my fingers, wiggling my fingers, flying. And, and eventually I got used to that and and that was the best thing that happened to me because that saved my life. Mm-hmm. And I know that when Ted Rudd, my other best friend, my other teammate, when he started going into that motion of like he's going to go, I'm going to go hardcore proxy tracking, you know. Um, and I'm like, well, bro, we had several talks about this. Uh, like, you know where this ends, bro. You know, if you start doing this stuff, the wheel's already been invented a few times. And um, you start doing this, this is going to end badly. And he's like, I know. But for the next two years, I'm going for it. And he did. And he died. Mm. And uh, he's my best friend. He's, the, he's probably the person I miss the most in my life every day. I've got pictures. I don't have pictures up of everyone because the, the rooms would be full, yeah. unfortunately. But I have pictures up of him because the year... The year before he passed, we shared some epic, an epic surf trip and an epic uh, Baffin Island trip. And um, he's, you know, that was, I think, the PTS had already been out then. But he's just missed, you know, seven years of epicness. And now the onesies out. Like, he would have fucking loved being in a one-piece tracking suit mm-hmm. uh, with what we're doing with these things now. And, uh, that, that still eats me up. But at the same time, he was on his journey. And I know in my time when I was super hardcore in the, in the late 90s, I was on this journey and everyone assumed, like, thought I was going to die. And, but, and I may have, but I didn't. But I was on my journey. Um, and you've got to let people also be on their journey. And uh, the thing with bass jumping is it's super dangerous if shit goes wrong. But it's actually the safest extreme sport if you do everything correctly. But, um, you know, we joke around. We have a, a game, a dark black game called Bounce Lotto. And we'll pick who's going in for the year. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty much correct every year. You know, some people last longer than we thought, but you see the people that are on their journey at that point in time. And I know there's a couple of guys in the Valley area now that we're just, we've, we've had them on the lotto list for a couple of years now. Mm. We absolutely hope they get through it, but they're reinventing the wheel and they're making the same mistakes that guys did before. And it's it sucks, dude, that dying, everyone's going to get a turn. Yeah. <laughs> so try and hold off as long as you can because... What I see now, Coombs, he's been dead 12 years. Slim's been dead 15 years, 14 years. Fuck, man. Like, they've missed out on the best years. And and old people are correct, but it's hard to listen to them when you're young. It's like, life just gets better and better and better. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't feel 41. The mirror tells the truth. But mm. other than that, I'm a 20-year-old kid just frothing at the bit all the time to go and do cool shit. And you can't do that if you're paralyzed or dead. And I've got, you know, I've got friends in a wheelchair. They're making the most of it, but they're still in a wheelchair. Um, that would better. That'd be better if they could walk. It'd be better if they could still hang out and do stuff with us. And then all my dead friends are f- fucked because they they really miss the best years, um, and then they're still continuing. So you look at yeah, again. I always go back to like uh, Marta or Anne or Todd or or Starnair or Robert Pecknick, you know, or or Rick Harrison. The reason they're still alive, having fun, is because they're still alive. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a huge, one. It's a huge thing. So. So the sport, yeah, when this wingsuit stuff happened, it's it's um, yeah, it's, it's very sad to watch because they were just dropping like flies, eh? Yeah, and yeah, every week. There's many reasons for it, and the competition side of things, you know, no, there's no blame. There's absolutely no blame with any uh, manufacturers or competitions or 
or just the way things were going or, or social media. I mean, it was, if you're going to blame anything, blame social media. But it still comes back to the person making the poor decision. Yeah. Um, but like the the China comps, that's something we dreamed of for a long time. Was, imagine being able to race ring suits around pylons and and things like this. And it was a, a distant dream because the wing suits had hardly been invented then. For yeah. the modern day wings, it's when we were dreaming of this stuff, and it started happening. So everyone started frothing, you know. And then the Red Bull Aces are flying around flags and helicopters, like this is mind blowing. And um, and you see the legends. I won't name anyone because they're fucking. Well, most of them are dead, but all the ones still alive. They're all social media legends as well, and they're putting out the most coolest hardcore stuff. Everyone, all of us, you know, we're all doing yep. it. And, yep. um, and and it just everyone just emulated that and the new guys were coming in with no business being there myself included that's why i quit wing city for six years early in the earlier days because i was like Fuck, i got no business being here yeah <laughs> you know but but what happened was the wingsuits got better so now like especially the early phoenix fly wingsuits i i couldn't fly them you had to it's yeah 12 step program yeah but then um the, the, the birdman as well the birdman to phoenix fly those it was hard to fly. You had to be good to fly them well. And, and so I went back to tracking. But then now with the, the newer suits, uh, with the other brands coming in like Tony Suits and, and Squirrel and now Phoenix Fly as well, the suits are a hell of a lot easier to fly. So right. now you don't have to be good to fly a wingsuit. You can just fly a wingsuit. Just lay in it and go and lay forward. Lay in it and go yeah. fly. And that is great as well. But yeah, then It's got its pros and cons. Yeah, it's great. But it doesn't teach you how to fly your body well. That's that's exactly what happened. That's that's what I realized. Yeah, I was able to lay in an A two, no problem. But now I put on a freak two and want to go do dynamic uh, skydiving, and I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I can jump off a cliff in dead air with a wingsuit on and get away from the cliff and go fast and straight. Yes, relatively fast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I can get a, I can go straight. But when somebody says, you know, hey, let's you know, fly on our backs, I don't have any idea what yeah. I'm doing. I can I can flop around and and i was like wow i i shot up too quick and got into things without like building the base layer of what that what that you know requires to be able to be because good it's possible to do it that way that's the problem now yeah. and, and so now we're doing 15 hours a tunnel with alex amard with satori factory and you know three hours a month every month for the five months straight and it's been huge. Yeah. And you know how bad you are when you get back in there. Yeah. So I, I'm exactly the same. I've gone from, like, I've gone back into skydiving wingsuits, and I've gone back into the wingsuit tunnel now. And I actually, when I had some uh, main sponsor, I went back into the normal tunnel as well. And I went back to basics because it's it's huge. I can do heaps of cool stuff, but it's I want to learn all the other stuff that I didn't learn. Mm-hmm. Um and that's, we're building our school now to, to do that, to have people l- learn progressively still, keeping it fun, um, but do it the right way so they don't have to skip the steps that we, we skipped. And again, the same, same thing with tracking. We try and teach these guys that we, the difference between back then and now, which I hate to sound like an oldie, but we were skydivers that base jumped. And now people skydive to base jump. And I think that's a huge issue now. And we're, we're trying to change that because skydiving is super fun. It's yep. definitely more expensive now. I mean, I used to get $22 to 10,000 feet um, in a Cessna. But they get five jumps for that money. And now in Switzerland, it's 45 francs mm-hmm. uh, one jump. So I could buy a month pass here for 70 bucks and do everything for a month base jump speed fly paraglide or one jump one minute for 45 bucks so that's part of it too for sure right but we always the reason why 
I was a very good tracker when I was especially younger before tracking suits. And the, the reason why people like Fred and Vince are incredible trackers is because they're skydivers. Mm-hmm. So we were competing in four-way and eight-way for many years, I think seven, eight years before we retired. And after the end of every jump, we'd track. And we track, and we track. And it was fun. We looked, The jump was fun, but we all looked forward to that last bit where we track off. And so, you know, and then you go to that. And then when I was lucky enough to get on that 300-way, and I was a good tracker, and we'd breaking away from this 300 way, and I'd be tracking them as fast as I can, and then watch some French bastard just because <laughs> the French are better at everything right? for the record. You know? They're incredible. <laughs> but then, you know, watch some French, you just rocket past, and you're like, holy wow, incredible. So that inspired you to next time you went back to the skydiving to train more on the tracking. And, and, and it wasn't even to go base jumping with it, it was just to track, to have fun in the sky. And, you know, I, those years in skydiving, that's why I got back into it now and left the the tandem side of the sport because it burnt me out. I didn't jump for four years after that, after I got burnt out to in tandems. But those initial years in skydiving were phenomenal. That built everything that, that I have today that, that I can use for myself and give to other people. And that's hugely important. Um, and then, again, we were lucky because the, the sport was so... We were... I wouldn't say we were inventing the sport or even pioneering the sport, but we were moving with the sport. That's probably the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, the pioneering had done, been done for the most part, but we were moving with the sport. So we were slick tracking and we were getting good at that. We were working out ways to do that. And I remember when I started teaching in Norway in 2003, everyone was still teaching to have legs bent. And I was the first guy to be like, hey, when you jump, it's because you just start watching everyone. When you jump, you better have your legs straight. And then when you watch the pendulator, which is the device for exit training, you see so much more. And, and that's why now we teach our guys to have legs straight when they jump um, because it actually creates a head down motion if you bend your legs. And and just things like that you, you see. So we were building our skills up on the job. Uh, but then, you know, Robbie, I think it was 2004, Robbie handed me uh, the first set of tracking suits. So Paul Fortune started jumping at first and then and Christian, uh, the guys up in northern Norway which the hardcore trackers hmm. still are, but definitely were then. Um, and then uh, they they brought them down. So me and Coons, you could have a try as well. Uh, and so we started that. I didn't even like them at the start because they're hard to control because they, they yeah. kept turning me left and right. And, and um, But then we got used to that. And then I was like, wow. And then the jackets came out. And then that started everything. Oh, so sorry, to go before that was the smoke pants. So mm-hmm. I did this big track in, off uh, Smellwagen in, in Norway in 2001. And then... Went to the US to them too, but Atla Dahl invented the smoke pants. So he found a way to just get cheap $20 rain pants and you burn smoke holes in the crutch and you tie them off at the bottom and you can track like a, a motherfucker in them. And he was mm-hmm. getting, I think, remember he got a 28 second track from Chirag. It was just epic. And then I, I, try, I tried to be, I was super current at tracking and so I can, a uh, bit, of, bit of a confident little motherfucker. You know? <laughs> so I, I get to the USA and I'm like, went with Tom Aiello and went, we went and did some Yosemite stuff and I was like, right, I'm going to be the first guy to out-track um, Halftime. And so I put these smoke pants off and this is the day we learnt about wearing a belt. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I, I'm up there, so it's a, it took us four hours to hike up but we were super fit, me and JJ. And um, anyway, I jump off, smoke pants and I've got a photo of us burning the smoke holes in before we go and jump off and it's six seconds. I'm like, what the fuck? And I feel this weird as my pants have come off around my ankles in free fall. Oh. And, <laughs> and so I'm skating. Obviously, the drag they created. And I, for 10 seconds, I had to pitch out. Gutted, you know. And I'm fine. It's highly illegal jump. Especially Super that, high Especially that, those days, too. And I'm at fucking 4,000 feet with a bright blue and yellow canopy, you know. Because I'd, 
we always got black canopies for urban stuff until Slim, who's a, a very vibrant guy, you know, he's like, you know, the second you open your parachute in the city, people look up. So why not get a canopy that looks good in photos too? You know? <laughs> so that was Slim's idea. So good we all point. started getting these bright canopies. Anyway, so that was the, after that, you always wore a belt with smoke pants and any, any pants since then. Um, so, so Atler and Yoninga and stuff, had, I think Yoninga had tracked Exit 4 at that stage. Well, it really taken off the tracking side of things. And, and so the, the Phoenix Fly pants, that's when Birdman just became Phoenix Fly. Uh, not even, though, still, still in that uh, transition period, I think. But uh, those, those pants came along. That, it was another game changer. But before that, that year, we were trying everything. I mean, I remember guys had uh, tracking gaiters, so they jump up in shorts but have like boosters on their on their feet. Um, and that, that, that worked a little. Uh, we started jumping just with our normal pants um, over our leg straps and opening the fly to create that little bit of air. Like, and it was really, a, it was really a barnstorming, like the early, early wingsuits in the 40s or whatever. We were doing the same thing with tracking. There's, I remember a guy showed up with a tracking nappy. No shit. He's got this he just heaps of plastic like glad wrap almost and made this big ball area around because everyone said to, to when you track your cup you have a thing like a beach ball so he basically made a beach ball around this part of his body and hilarious you know but these I mean, i've got a video of all this somewhere like sitting in archive and so we're trying all this stuff and then you then you put elastic in from your feet into your shoes around your crutch and into your other shoes so pull it down pull it down and then We'd use these rain jackets, and I didn't go into this too much because I was tracking well already. But you know, they'd pull these elastics through their jackets and stretch all their jackets out. And so it got to that point, and, and now they were doing that with the tracking pants as well. So the, everything was, was getting tweaked. And it got to the point where I think it was pressurized, come out with a uh, it was awesome too, but like a skirt, like a, it was like a wingsuit leg, mm. um, but with no, no, just a normal jacket. And it got to the point where it was getting pretty ridiculous. And, and basically, Robbie Pecknick, whose his sense of humor is awesome. A lot of people don't like him because of his sense of humor. They think he's <laughs> dead serious. And, um, but every, every sense of humor point he makes has got some deadly truth to it as well, which makes it even funnier. He goes, he's like, look at all this. They're just shitty wingsuits now. So, <laughs> so we made a bit of an unwritten law that if you could touch your knee to your head, it was a tracking suit. If you couldn't, it was a wingsuit uh-huh. because the fabric was getting so bulky that it actually turned into literally just shitty wingsuits. And uh, and um, and that's that's where the tracking sort of took a mind of its own. And then the wingsuits started progressing, and then the prodigies came out, and yeah, the, 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 yeah, the single skin wingsuits, right. which yeah, that's... hardcore. When you look back, it was I did some hardcore shit in that thing as well. I wouldn't do now, but yeah. Yeah. I'm, take, like, I'm taking it to Baffin. I, yes, just it, for fun. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I can't track. <laughs> definitely a part I've of our uh, progression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you look at where the sport's gone now, and, and as far as suit design, and you know, I, I, I'm with Phoenix Fly, so I've been sponsored by them for a very long time. As I, I don't know what's about to come out with the other companies, but Phoenix Fly is this onesie. It's a one-piece tracking suit. And the latest test that they did, they were getting 2.7 glide ratio. I don't know how sustained that was. I know they were getting over three. Uh, not sustaining flares, um, but two two point three to two point seven glide ratio and two hundred twenty plus k's an hour in a tracking suit. And for me, I, I was always a tracker. I mean, that's why I gave up wingsuiting for so long uh, back in from basically two thousand and three to two thousand and two thousand four to two thousand nine, something roughly around that area. I stopped went back to tracking once these tracking suits come out. And I did the same last year with this onesie. Uh, we did, it, the first model wasn't the center of gravity wasn't right. 
And so a few of us would just talk to Robbie and we changed it and changed it and changed it. And I did four wingsuit jumps last year because this thing is just a weapon. And you're doing a turn Brento, Monte Brento in Italy, from an, a fun little aerobatics jump with a massive canopy ride or a, quite a boring wingsuit jump as, as such. Um, and then you might be jumping, exiting in shitty conditions because of crosswinds and stuff into just this full pout, full drag strip uh, tracking jump. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So that, that was just epic. So that turned that turned my whole sport around again. And that's it's been the beauty over the last 20 years is the sport is reinventing itself all the time. And, and I, I enjoy staying with it. Maybe not pushing the wingsuit side of things but back to the tracking stuff that's my specialty that's what i love and this thing now it's, it's a weapon it's the best way to describe it is like if you're in a wingsuit you're flying like you're driving down the autobahn in a brand new audi and you're doing 200 plus k's an hour but you don't really feel it you're cruising but if you put on this one piece you're doing the same speeds but you feel like Kirk Russell at death, death proof, you know? You're just like, wah, wah, wah. you're in this muscle car and it's just a beast. Mm. Um, but you've got range of movement in your arms, range of movement in your legs, and it's just a weapon. You know, I have no doubt the other brands will come out with something like this because in, it's... In the right hands. In the right hands, but... Because have you seen the, the latest uh, with Brento? With the rules? Or, yep. Yeah, which is good. That's cool. It'll, it'll make everyone go safer. Yeah. I agree with it. So, and the the one piece does that at the moment, which and is that's good. the whole point. Yeah, like, surprise, surprise! You have a you have a suit that can get good trackers all the way over to the landing main landing area tracking. Yes, but again, it comes all of the ones that aren't good trackers or aren't flying that thing well or haven't skydived it and you know scaring the shit out of everybody there. Yes, and that's and that's I I love that they put that rule in because it, again it's a it's a progression to keeping that site open. And we need to be proactive rather than reactive. So um, if they had been proactive in Chamonix, Chamonix would still be open. Yeah. So I, I really support – I support both sides of the fence. And I I still – I will always be the – no one's going to tell me what to well, do. That's the but, interesting part. But when it affects our sport, uh, like, um, you know, someone goes in at that cafe at Brento, which is highly possible yeah. with these one pieces, um, all brands, because all brands are making it a land area, mm-hmm. um, then, then the, that – cliff is over and that cliff is very it's i think it's got the most deaths of any cliff in any object in the world per capita as right. such um and it's we want to keep that preserved it's incredible so i agree with that rule and then it still comes down to personal safety your personal safety so it's, it's open higher simple yep you know enjoy that canopy ride you know and because back in the day it was all about going low you know we go off how do you get a track further than your mate you go lower mm-hmm. and that that was how it was and and then eventually you know again after deaths and accidents and you learn to to open higher track less and now we teach that get to find, mark a point on the on say it's a road or something mark that point get to that point at a safe height you know once you can get to that point at a safe height instead of trying to track further open higher mm-hmm. and open higher and higher and higher until you're so high that it's ridiculous and then set another point and then go to that point and then work again. And even in Chirag in Norway, I was teaching my guys and, and my friends to do it that way. And I still do. I still point it out to people that go low there is uh, don't go to the land era because you, if you, one, you'll go too low trying to make it. And that's what killed Darcy. Mm. Um, and two, if you have to open high, if you don't make it, you're opening really high because it's a really steep talus. So aim at the water. Make sure you get easily over the water for your first one and then turn the degrees for your next one. And, to, and stay over the water the entire time. And that way you're getting the maximum 3,000 foot altitude. 
uh, but you're doing it in a safe way. And if, and if shit does go wrong, you're going to be over water. And I've seen uh, very good jumpers have accidents there. It's just the tension knots or, mm-hmm. or line overs and stuff. And, and the guys that have been over the water are completely yeah. fine. Yeah, you're surrounded by water. Yeah. And then the one guy that has the problem and opens over rocks yeah. and, and it's, gets just beat to shit. And it kills people. And I've seen heaps because I lived there for so long. I saw so many accidents there for those reasons. And um, So what they're doing in Brento, I think, is, is awesome. And it will push designers... Uh, to make it so that everyone gets 30 seconds canopy rides over that, that landing area. Yep. And if, if you don't, then get better. Work at it. And accept who you are. So some body types just can't track that far. Some you know, age groups may not get as far as the younger guys. or you know, and, But you've you got to accept that. that. And it's a hard thing because that's self-ego. And that's the hardest thing for any person to accept is their own self-limitations. Yeah, self-limitations. And, you know, I... I tell it to my students, like, you can always be the best you can be. That's the most important thing. The rest doesn't matter. And it can only be one world champion at any one sport at any one time. That's what I say to my guys at the end of the course. And But why do you want to be that? Be your own world champion all the time with everything you do and just be stoked on yourself. So, okay, I'm not making it. Who gives a fuck? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go land in a safe spot and I'm going to do it again. Right. Whereas, And then by doing that, then my friends can do it again. But if you're the guy that fucks up and hits that, hits a moving car still tracking because you're just fixated on getting to that landing area or hitting a building or you know then then it fucks it for everybody and it just it happens so much every event uh kl luckily is the one that's stayed true so far so far god knows how that's no one's died there but (laughs) but it's it's an ongoing event on bridge day as well even though bridge day's had a couple accidents but other events you know people just push it and and fuck it up for everybody and it's really important when you go to an event or a competition. Well, not so, competitions are a tricky one, but with the wingsuit. But when you go to an event, um, don't try anything new, and don't try and push yourself all the limits. You know, just run at fifty percent, enjoy the event. That wasn't the case back in the day. You always first time at KL, you're absolutely trying something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but now we, if you're going to do the new that sort of new stuff, you know, we, we have things play, um, coaches in place to help you do that safely. But don't go banging off something crazy on some super gnarly jump because it'll fuck the event. I mean, that happened to us in Mexico when, again, one of my other teammates, Adam Gibson, the last words I said to him um, with him and a friend of ours that was on the jump with him was like, this is an event. It's the first event ever in Mexico. Don't do two ways and don't do any aerials. And what do they do? They did a two-way. Two-way aerials. And and one did a gainer and she only made it by 20 feet over this ledge and he did a front loop which he the the jump before that was the most perfect double front I've ever seen off in Moab but it's a front loop and he over rotated it and just hit this ledge and impacted mm. and it fucked the event forever that was never on again mm. um, and it was all he had to do was just jump it normal and he would have been fine but but they didn't they pushed it they had to show off those cameras there and everything and, and the problem was the guy before that did the same thing and he didn't have time to radio up and say Jesus Christ I only made that by 10 feet maximum do not do anything aerials or this and that but it all happened in the brief we all knew not to do anything I'd been on heaps of events before so I knew not to, to push it treat this jump serious and um, and this is a the history repeats all the time mm-hmm. I mean the same thing happened with Slim in, in, in China that event could have been massive there was a second year it was run I think 300,000 people live and that event's never, and it's a 1400 foot jump, this beautiful building, absolute treated like rock stars there, five star hotels, like everything. I was crazy. Um, and then his death fucked it forevermore. Done, done, you know. 
and it's a shame and that happens over and over and over again and it just it's that's the saddest part with our sport is it's two steps forward one step back or, or vice versa mm-hmm. you know so so where um, do you think it is going so because the onesie really only came on the scene a few yeah, years while i've been here last yeah. year yeah really, yeah so now now we've got a new set of dangers so what happened was uh tracking started and that was good because it get you safer away from the cliff then we started proxy tracking and kill mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. uh wingsuiting started to get you safer away from the cliffs and then Luik just blew everyone's minds. Good on him. And it, and it really changed everything. And everyone's like, fuck, we could turn back and fly along stuff. And, and, but you still had to be good to fly those, those suits. And they were, they were harmless suits. You couldn't do so much across ground stuff. There's more vertical stuff in Norway. Um, and then, and now, that obviously, what's happened in the last few years is the wingsuits killed everyone because they just started going across ground and put themselves in way known places and places they should not have been there and, and i see stuff with friends and i'd be sitting and flying above them just enjoying the ride and they're just in the trenches and one microburb or or if the weather wasn't the same as yesterday or, or a tree branch you tree can't branch. see and i mean then these are the they're the accounts that have been told about i know of a hell of a lot of, of stuff by the top guys that will never be public because it'll fuck their image up or, or whatever you mm-hmm. know um there are a lot of near misses a lot of hits a lot of people hitting stuff um, so that's turned that sport into craziness, but it was initially designed, it was made you safer. So now the one piece <laughs> has been designed to, to get you far away from those cliffs. And it's amazing. And I treat, I treat it like that, but yeah, of course there's going to, the next wave of accidents are going to be for one pieces for sure. Because now people, and I even see my guys, you know, we've got to be super strict on them because they're turning along and they're flying these lines that are wingsuit lines now and mm-hmm. they, they've got the same glide as such but they don't have the, the flare ability and and that's just another set of teething problems and the sport will stay like this forever mm-hmm. uh, same as swooping you know like it's how do we turn something that we've made safe into, into something, something dangerous, dangerous. <laughs> and uh, same as speed flying you know there's so many speed flying accidents now and there's if you speed flying is potentially very dangerous and potentially very safe if you respect the, the unwritten rules and and if people do respect them, they stay alive. You know, so like for speed flying, it's like don't do cliff launches and don't do barrel rolls low to the ground. You do, and res- through, across the board, respect the weather. So if you you respect those few things, there's not many things to respect. You're gonna have a long and healthy uh, speed flying life. And base jumping is the same thing. You know, respect the weather, respect your abilities. Um, you know, separate yourself from the group. You know, and 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 you will stay alive. How much is your life worth? Mine's worth fucking heaps. Not to anyone else, but to me. Um, and, and what I've learned over the years is no one gives a fuck about you when you're gone. Mm. You know, you're, there's certain people that, you know, I remember Ted on a daily basis maybe, um, but you know, other friends, you know, once a week or other friends here and there, other friends completely not until someone will bring them up. And um, that's human nature, especially in base jumping. So you try and do all this cool stuff, um, you know, and you die, no one's going to remember who you are doing that cool stuff. So, but if you're here to tell the tales of the cool stuff from 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you're still remembered, you know, it's a, and you look at Dwayne Weston again, no one knows who he is these days, really. Mm-hmm. And he was the best bass drummer of all time, in my opinion. Um, and, but he fucking died, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So the sport, the sport will always be rogue. Um, I think what's happening now is we're putting in, it's evolving. A lot of us are realizing now it's, we can't self-regulate. So, like other sports have happened in the past, they've had to start regulating. So, I think there's there's bubbles of us now regulating with our own groups. 
So like my, my own school, we have, you know, 100, 100 or so jumpers in our school now. And we regulate them pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got other courses like Snake River Base. They've got a, they've maybe a 1,000 jumpers. And, and they've got their own set of regulations for their guys. And Apex the same. And uh, Next Level will start to have the same as they grow. And, and you know, there's still a lot of groups that don't have that. And they're starting to, you start to see that a lot more. And, and you can see the differentiation. And you do. And I, on the ethical side of it too, not just the skill side of it, on the ethical side of it. You know, So, I mean, if my students... They have to pick up rubbish during the course, or they don't pass. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, as an example, and it's not just the jumping, but it's the whole evolution of the respect to to, to basically keep our sport preserved and keeps our, our sites legal in the future. I'm, I'm not even thinking present anymore with everything I do with the school and and the coaching and everything. Now I'm thinking future, and eventually there will be some sort of regulations that will start small and and grow to be on paper, just like this. Like say the Australian Skydiving Federation and other federations, the paragliding federation, there's climbing federations now, there's all this stuff, and, and there will be a heap of uproar uh, by a lot of people, but it will grow, uh, and eventually people will look back and be probably most likely thankful. Um, but you'll always have, it's a rogue sport that can be done illegally anywhere, and I hope I never stop doing illegal jumps as well. Uh, but you just got to pick your battles and try not to burn it for anyone else. I've burnt sites over the years for sure, you know, it's never intentional. But... Um, you have to try and grow this sport in a way that the legal sites stay open. Illegal jumps and urban jumps will always be illegal. Um, but a lot of people only jump legal stuff now. And I think the sport needs to go into that area. There's a lot more. It's just, you know, a lot of illegal stuff's felony in the US now. So a lot less people are jumping that stuff. And um, But the main cliffs are legal. And, and places like Ladebrun and Brento and Chirag, it's, you know, we want them there for out the next generation, the generation after that. And I think it's, stuff that um, again I don't think we were any different in the early 2000s when I first came to Lardabrun in 2001 I don't think we're any different to the jumpers now there's just a hell of a lot more jumpers Mm -hmm. I think we was just as bad but we could only ever do four jumps a day maximum Mm. five if you got a chance to because there's no paths or anything you had to work it out I saw your uh yeah, map. yeah. So that that's, map was amazing. That's that's what it's like. I've, and I've been actually been get, given a few, sent a few maps since then from other areas of mm. the world, and it's cool. Um, but that was it. So there's there's a hell of a lot less. We all knew each other. Uh, there's a lot less options. You track track slick, and you open and you landed. And you only ever got a certain way. You only ever landed in a certain field, and that was that. But um, now there's just there's so many variables. So you know you got your aerobatics, your tracking, your one piece, your wingsuit, then your proxy flying of all that stuff. Um, and then the, you're landing on everyone's fields, and there's a shit ton of people, mm-hmm. and, and they, a full range of types of people, t- and types of people, yeah, loud, obnoxious, swearing a lot. I and mean, this is just me, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's just, but that that's fine. It was ever just one or two people here and there, but now there's a fuck ton of people, mm-hmm. um, and and that's where the issues are coming in. It's not so much the sport hasn't changed in that respect. You still attract those type of people, and I love those type of people. They're amazing, but you need to respect now that it's grown beyond ourselves controlling ourselves. And, and Brento's a big one because um, once they put the bus in to shorten the ride, that changed everything. That's when all the accidents happened. That's when all the attitude problems come in. That's when people treated it like it was nothing. And it nearly nearly closed that place down. And when it was a big deal for our school because we have such rigorous training. You needed it. We needed it. That's why I based my school around that. But, when they when they stopped the buses going out to walk the long way, I was stoked. So this needed to happen. I was, I was very supportive of it and very glad it happened because it teaches people a lesson of like, 
look, we just took this away from you because you did this. So hopefully next time we bring it back, you'll respect it. Um, and that's what's happened with Shalmani now. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's bad. It's real. I'd never got to jump there. I refused to be part of the circus. Uh, I went there seven or eight times and never jumped. And it was even on that first week when it all went crazy, I refused to go because I just through my, all my experiences, the hype and all the big names that were going there, all my friends mm-hmm. and the bravado that was going there and not in any, it was just self stuff. It wasn't any, it's hard, it's hard to explain. They, they were all just, I just knew what was going to escalate and it escalated in Yoninga's death. And, and, and that's exactly what I knew was happening. I called it. I, I didn't think it would have been him. I thought it would have been a couple other people, but it's exactly what happened. And then it, that died down for a bit. Then it went up again and it kept going and going and going. And then eventually, you know, Ratmir hit that shallow and then that was done. But we don't want that to happen in the rest of the world. Austria is now illegal. The whole fucking country. Really? Yeah, has been, that new? I didn't, I didn't has been for that. a couple of years. Yeah. Huh. So, and wow. so we don't want Switzerland going that way or Italy going that way. Um, Chirag is great because Chirag is a benchmark of everything for me personally. They turned, they kept that a club. They kept it open. Stein has been incredible there. Uh, it's now a business, so it's doing even better actually. There's, there's, the money's getting put back into the clubhouse and, and this and that. But you could always go to Chirag with your own car and your own boat and jump as much as you want. There's no rules against jumping that, um, that cliff at all. But if you wanted to use their boat to get back from the landing and their car, you had to follow these rules. And they weren't hard rules to follow. Hmm. Um, and it's worked. And now they're still open and thriving. And, and we go, I, go, I started going back there now. So it's a really cool vibe. And it shows that it can work and it can be done. Um, so we need to implement, implement this into the, the other countries and stuff. And um, like the Prine, I think it's okay at the moment. That went through a phase as well. And yeah. you know, no one wants it completely legalized. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, regulated or anything. But there's, there's certain just common sense rules that need to be put in place yeah um, well when i broke my leg in twin uh i didn't i didn't call for any help or anything because i i wasn't sure how big the ramifications would be if you know another guy snaps his leg mm. you know so i i just didn't want any, any bad attention you know on the bridge yeah because of that. and it's and that's it's true and that's australia's definitely you couldn't call mm-hmm. because you, the ramifications are huge i mean it's already illegal they're already hunting but um Unless it was bad, I always said it left his pelvis back or, or death, um, then we'd, we'd get out of there ourselves. And even with Adam Gibson, when he had one of his accidents and he broke his pelvis I don't, in leg, I think, as well. But we, they carried him out a piggyback five hours, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember Shane Dunn come down, who's a fucking legend guy, came down with an esky full of beer and Red Bull to help the rescue. <laughs> and no, no water. <laughs> he had to go back and what get need, water. What do you need water you know? for? Uh, but yeah, look, I, I, I see. I'd like to say that I see both sides of the, the fence and I'm all about it not being regulated. Um, but I also think it needs to be regulated. And I'm, I'm taking steps through my school and that to, mm-hmm. to regulate at least our area so that, so that we can jump in the future. And, and it's just common sense. Like, don't, don't pull it 50 feet you know, over the prine over water because at one time you have a snivel, you fucking break yourself. And it's happened over and over there. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Same, same for Italy. Italy's a real, a bit of a hotspot at the moment because of all these things, because because of the easy accessibility. Yep. So there's not many accidents up north of Norway because you still have to put in that three, four hours effort to get to those cliffs. And and get up to Norway. And get up to Norway, and it's a huge thing. It's a huge adventure. A lot of the adventure side is gone from it now, I think. Um, and the ramp, like the Steckelberg area, for me, when that first opened up, and I think it was open well before I was even there. The Frenchies had that locked down for a while and kept it quiet. And, but I'd take take a few beers, sit them in the river, take my speakers and just go do a couple of jumps in the afternoon, chill, pack and 
have a good time. Now it's a full-blown drop zone circus down there. And uh, people are, they're already thinking about their next jump during or before and during the jump that they're actually doing. So they're just going numbers and, and, and just trying all this stuff. And okay, for competition, I know the top guys when the wingsuit races are on, that's, that's perfect. Training that a, spot. Yeah, that's a great training spot. But you're missing the, the point of the jumping a lot as well. So these days, I don't, I don't go there rarely at all. I'll go there in March while the rounds. I'll do a couple of jumps to get current. But all, all about going to like Lamoose or the Iger or yeah. all these other jumps. Enjoy a nice walk with your friends and, um, and enjoy yourself rather than doing 14 jumps. But in saying that, there was a time when I first came to Switzerland when I was exactly like that. But we could only yeah. do four or five jumps. Yeah. So that was so. So it's still there. I understand that people's. Yeah, as much as everything changes, a lot of things will always stay the same. Yeah. You know, people will be people. For sure. And and that's that's something we need to just work out as a as a group as a sport to keep it so that all of a sudden it's not shut down. Yeah. You know, and just simple regulations like open before the power lines at, at the ramp. Mm-hmm. If you if you can't make it over by four hundred feet open beforehand i mean i did that myself i was so aware that I was, I was right on that level i could get i could get pretty far but instead of tracking over those power lines i just do a, a backflip or a barrel roll or a 360 after i cleared the last ledge mm. completely in high air changed the aspect of the jump had a ball every time and then there's no danger of me hitting any power lines and stuff and mm. so but that was me self-regulating myself and um and i think now i mean and everyone's trying to work towards Steckelberg and stuff to get it regulated to a certain extent. You've got to radio radio down and things like that, and you can't jump between certain times, and it's good. Mm-hmm. But just everyone needs to sort of abide by it to make it grow, to make yeah, the sport grow. Yeah, just communicating with the paragliders and respecting the rules and just keeping it yeah, keeping it chill. Yeah. You, you don't know something's gone until it's gone. And yeah. then it's, once a law is made, it's very hard to change that law back. Uh, so it's, it's up to us to to keep the sport growing without the laws getting made and make mm-hmm. our own laws. Yeah, yeah I was going to yeah, say, laws getting made by non-jumpers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's and what happened in Austria. It's like, that's, that's where yeah. we're bad. And Australia's still and bad trying as well. to work through it now. So, yeah. And so, and then, oh, I mean, El Cap, you know, Yosemite. Same thing. It's the same thing, so. Yeah, you, you kind of touched on it uh, earlier, but the early days of Lauterbrunn and Bass, and uh, you mentioned that little map, a hand-drawn map. I'm going to see if I can add a link to it in the notes. But uh, oh, cool. is there yeah. anything else you want to say about like the early days of wow. Lauterbrunn and Bass or maybe how you've seen it yeah. grow or change? First, I'd say it definitely wasn't the early days because it was really 96, 97 when they opened that stuff up. Mm-hmm. Xavier Bongard, Will Ox, and then uh, Andy West, Dave Barlier, uh, the French guys like Jean-Michel. and all the, you know, There's tons of French probably in there. And, and we only came along in 2001. So it was established already, but again, it was established by mud maps. And uh, there's four the jumps we knew about was uh, Lamoose, which was called Steilenflu back then. Uh, <laughs> I didn't yeah, know that's that. its real name. It's first Steilenflu. Steilenflu. Uh, Yellow Ocean, and that was on that side. And then you had the waterfall, uh, Starbuck, and you had the nose one, the original nose, which is called the nose. And then down the other end of the valley, you had Gimmerwald. And outside the valley, you had my ring. And that's the only jumps that were known and jumped. And and then Kandersteg opened up after that. Um, and the Iger was only jumped in 2000 anyway. Wow. So first time. So And then, you know, people like Yuri Kuzniskov would come and they'd start wingsuiting the early days of the Melkstool and, and those sort of things. And But it was, yeah, it was a cool adventure. And it was an adventure by accident that we found because we... We did the world championships in Spain uh, with the eight-way, 
and we were going to go to Norway after that. And and we saw that movie First Base, and and some Aussie friends had come back from Norway and said, "Holy shit, this place is epic!" So that was our main goal. But on that video, <laughs> there was a jump on the the First Base video. There was a jump in France called the Tree, and it was where they had a little platform on this tree, and we were just blown away by this jump. So I only went to France to jump that tree, <laughs> you know, with the hundreds of jumps that are in France, and um, by chance on doing tandems up at Mission Beach, we met uh, Jean-Michel and his Mrs. Monica on the beach there. So had a had a wine with them, chatting away. And Jean-Michel now is the, the head of the French Base Association. Incredible guy, uh, pure to the roots, you know, happy-go-lucky and incredible tracker. And, and uh, yeah, so he's like, well, when are you there, come, come to us. And it's my first tr- big trip overseas. Luggage area, skydive rigs and base gear and, and anyway, all these trains. And so he takes us... To, uh, I just want to do the tree. That's all I want to do. And he's like, now come to this jump. So he took us to a jump called La Grania, which is my first terminal jump, which I didn't know how to pack for terminal at that point. Oh, shit. <laughs> had a cracker opening. and hurt. It was hurt for weeks. Uh, did that jump, and then I just wanted to do that tree, you know. And he took us to another jump, and it was uh, Maglan Classic. And I'll, I'll never forget, I looked over the edge of this jump, and I was like, holy fuck, this is sheer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I learned all my aerobatics <laughs> in, in that week. You know, I just, I oh, just wow. I was like, oh, shit, this, that's sheer for like five seconds? I, wow. You know, and that's literally where I learned gainers and barrel rolls and th- flat 360s and front loops at this place. And I went back years later. And there's no way in hell I would ever do that stuff again. But coming from <laughs> Australia, that's, that was the most, best clip I've ever had. I said, like, this is the best clip in the world. He's like, this is, this is our crap cliff. This is the worst cliff in France. So you need to go to this place, Laderbrun. What, what do you mean? <laughs> No, no, really, you got to do this place, Laderburn, and um, and that's that map he drew me. Yeah. Wow. Well, the funny is, I I know every exit in the valley, but I couldn't make sense of that map at first when I was looking at it. I was like, Ugh. well, that's the difference, right? Yeah. So it's changed. I mean, when you talk about like you know, as things progress, I mean, the same thing happened. You, you used to have a, a an atlas, a world, you know, a road map that yeah. you stuck in the back seat of your car. Yeah, I still keep one in my car just in case. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, now you know, even, and then even people talk about MapQuest like that's way back in the day and now you know trying to think of people getting around without a you know google maps oh it's it's crazy but this is part of the adventure that's the thing it's like it was so freaking cool to work this stuff out and yeah i remember i did uh, some of my best friends from norway and, and when i met in norway and and france and switzerland that trip because it was, that season was small and so you're all in the same spot at the same time, all of you. And that's it. all my friends from back in those days are still friends today. Uh, it was incredible. So you're all on this incredible adventure together. And you know, we're sleep, sleeping on the ferry, um, the luggage tray at the ferry terminal, just you know, a packing mat or a sleeping bag, and <laughs> sleeping in underground car parks and behind the firehouse in Maglan, and you know, just rugged as hell and just freezing and hungry. And we had no money for anything, you know. But this sense of adventure was just incredible. And, yeah, I mean, the first guys here, the first people we met here was that I remember was Valerie Rossoff, who's just passed away recently in the Himalayas, and Dennis, Rush, crazy Russians. <laughs> so to find maximum exit points straight away, some of the guys went with those guys who knew Yellow Ocean, and they were able to try and find it through there. And then Tom Aello, who owns Snake River Base, uh, Matt Strickland, uh, Shimo, and there's a, there's a few others. Um, yeah, Tom, GPS, like, a point on the ground down here in Laderun and then and then we had to try and search for it. All we knew was you've got to cross the fourth bridge, 
go a little further and then head down the hill. And it, it took us like an hour and a half to find this thing the That's first time. That's not too bad. No, it was fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah but it was just it was a cat and mouse game. No, I didn't, I didn't even know what a GPS was. Mm. <laughs> it was this big old thing. <laughs> and, and then we, you finally get, you go to 20 wrong spots and all hope is lost. And, and then, it, then it happens. You find upon this muddy, shitty rope that the French guy put in there years before. And you get there and it's the best jump of your life. It's, like, it's oh. over hay. And, yeah, yeah it's incredible. Like, yeah. You know, I'm still friends with all those guys today. And, that you really remember those jumps rather than like if you go to the ramp and do 14 jumps in a day you're not going to remember any of those jumps you remember right. you did 14 jumps in the day but i'll never forget my first trips to Ladderburn and, and and especially like that first jump off the nose or first gimmerworld or you know just uh like those essence you know and mm-hmm. i tell my guys you'll never ever get your first hundred jumps back so just in, enjoy them and cherish those moments and cherish the friends that you go on those adventures with because it's huge it's a huge thing and that's part of the sport is to keep keep um finding new places and the new places might be discovered by someone else they're, they're the pioneers but you're again you're your own pioneer so every time you find a new spot you still got to make all those same decisions they had to make you just and sometimes you don't know that anyone's jumped it before we went to a jump outside the valley here and we opened a new wingsuit spot up but I was like, I wonder if anyone's jumped here before. And I just went back through some history stuff and ah, been jumped in 96 <laughs> yeah, by, by uh, Xavier Vongard, yeah. And it was like, that was so cool, you know. And then you'd go to like um, Jojo, uh, Dr. Willy Wonka is his name. And he's just stopped jumping recently, but he's been base jumping for nearly 30 years, I think. And he hurt his ankle 25 plus years ago. So in the days when we we're traveling, you'd go to the big, big exit points, you know, the big hikes, and you know that have been jumped and you knew where the exit point was because Jojo he had sticks for every time he went for a jump he, he molded carved sticks so he could walk and so you knew you are in the right spot when you saw Jojo's sticks packed a pile <laughs> of sticks yeah it? and it was so cool and it's a part of history yeah, yeah. It's a, and I think it's a, for me it's a hugely important thing I don't forget where I've, where I've come from where I've gotten to and who, who are the people that got me there and, and it's just super cool so I still love the adventure side of things and that's why this one piece is so exciting because well we're going up north of Norway this year again, and it's just going to be a new lease on life. You know, I've been there tracking, I've been there wingsuiting, and now I'm going to go there in a one piece. And it's like get to rediscover this this place again and rediscover myself and all the memories, and then create some really cool new ones and cool friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. so speaking of that, I was going to say, where are we on time? Oh, we're at about one forty. I don't know. What yeah, because you've got to do something at four, four, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. it's only it's two fifteen. We can also do more of these too. Eh? Yeah, I was yeah, going to say, because we, we could sit here and yeah. talk all afternoon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I do have one question I promised I'd ask, and uh, that's uh, when will we see the Night Fox? <laughs> uh, the Night Fox, as in Jenny? I don't know. Fer- night- Farrell wouldn't give me any ah, like, that's background. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the Nightmare and she's the Night Fox. So we've we've taken a bit of a turn in the last uh, eight months and we've, I'm a recovering alcoholic pretty much, so I've stopped drinking since, since September. Uh, Jenny's on a full fitness mission as well, so she's, uh, she's uh, yeah, she still parties a bit, but uh, she's, she's toned it down quite a lot now, and we're, we're keeping super fit. We've taken a new chapter in our lives, but um, we still come out a little bit, and definitely the Las Vegas convention. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Vegas Circus, yeah, yeah, we'll, that, we'll come out a bit then. Um, it's... Burning Man was my last hurrah, and I, I was out in full force then. Um, but Jenny's Jenny, the Night Fox has calmed down. But we met. Uh, I met the Night Fox. That's how I fell in love. Yeah. It's 
crazy motherfucker of a girl. <laughs> Shout out to Jenny. She's such a sweet Yeah, she's man. awesome. Mate. So she's skinning up the mountain right now. She's on a three-hour skin to the top of the Labohorn Mountain. Mm, so right. she's a mission, yeah. Um, blue, bluebird weather, by the way, and we're in, in a dark doors. room yeah. t- talking about base yeah. jumping. And in in a hut jumping. on top of a mountain <laughs> yeah. in I Switzerland. Can't, I can't so. do anything. I'm recovering right. from a broken rib for, uh, again, fifth right. one in three years. And I've... The first time outside, I tried to beat Jenny and, and skin up for an hour and a 52 minutes. Yeah. And I've got the worst blisters I've ever had in my life. I've been in bed ah. for a few days since then as well. So, yeah, the mirror the mirror tells the truth. <laughs> That's right. I'm old. But the, other than that, I still try and stay young every day. But it gets me into more and more trouble. Yeah. <laughs> is Before we wrap up, is there anything you want to tell listeners about your school or uh, what you have going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, could... I just – I'm so blessed with – what this sport has given me it's taken a lot away from me uh, as well in the recent years with friends and stuff but it's really given me everything so my and again another chapter of my life in this sport is the ability to give back and i it sounds super cheesy and i sound super weirdo but i actually getting more joy from helping others now than just the jumping myself so and and meeting all these new young guys that were coming in with the same spirit as i had and still have um but i'm frothing on them now and We've designed our course around those type of people. Uh, we've made it. We've made it quite hard to get into. We've raised the bar as far as jump numbers go. You've got to have 300 jumps. You've got to have your own gear. You've got to be willing to put in a massive amount of pre pre planning and, and preparation. Uh, you've got to be willing to go super hard as far as physical and mental fitness goes. We try and break you. and We try and get you to quit the sport. But then you, uh, if you pass and you're part of that that core person that we look for. Um, you're in the family for life and it's been absolutely so rewarding and and we've developed our training skills incredibly over the last couple of years and we're still building we've got more instructors now where our training syllabus is all written down now we're getting more and more knowledge on how excuse me how to simplify things Um, and the froth levels are super high so this year we have our first family event uh, which we're having in Norway um, and it's only our school is, is invited and it's the mullet butthole boogie and so we're going to teach them all the, the as much as we can to again become better than us you know i try and teach all my students to be better than than me and and they are a lot of uh, the some of the most rewarding things have been when my students have taken me to exit points i haven't jumped before and oh that's rad. such a cool thing because i got to do the same with one of my mentors sharky uh he's taken me through everything and then i got to take him out to the milk store wing suiting a, a few years ago and he looks at me and goes, well, I guess it's come full circle, hasn't it? You know? <laughs> and it was such a rewarding moment, uh, sort of father-son style. And, and I'm trying to give that to my guys now. And I, the reason we don't do too many courses, we only do three main ones a year at this stage, um, is to keep the passion there. Uh, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. And, and we breed the fun. You can only have fun if you're safe and if you're alive. So we keep that s- stuff to a minimum so that I can give my 100% and, and really give everything I have to these guys. And we do. We don't hold anything back. And if they do the right thing by us, uh, we'll do the right thing by them. So if, if we have a few guidelines, they're pretty simple to follow, just respect-wise. And if they do that, we'll take them through for life for free um, on any course. And we've got one guy, um, Lance, who's now an instructor with us. He's been on seven courses. Yeah. He's an incredible guy, uh, a great teacher, and now he's a valuable member of our team. So two... Two of our instructors uh, have previously done been and on their courses. Robin, Robin, well. Robin, yeah. Clancy as well, um, and he's incredible, and and he still puts in the effort. So they have still got to work 
Um, so when they come back, they come, the students come back and they can, we'll teach them more stuff, but then they also have to help the other students out. And they actually, without noticing, they learn a ton more by helping the other students out um, that they would have if they just come and did the course yeah. and went on their merry way. So, yeah, it's been good. So we're booked out uh, this year. Uh, we've got one extra course we put on in April to help a couple of people out. Uh, next year, we're half booked already, and it's going really well. And we want to, again, my goal, our goal as a team is to set the bar. So we want to be, you know, more... I'd love to raise the jump numbers to 500 jumps before we can go to a base jump, but we had to keep that realistic. So 300 jumps, and, and I'd like to see everyone lift the bar rather than lower the bar and mm-hmm. with really good training syllabuses and techniques and uh, and managing the sport themselves. And, and some courses are definitely doing that. Others need need a lot of work you know and and what we did has also become completely legal so and i'm the full most illegal guy ever back in the day but like our business is legal you know we pay taxes on it we've got insurance for all our students liability we i'm trying to do it right all the stuff that i didn't do uh back in the day i'm trying to do it right to to show my students their their future how they can make this sport even greater in the future just like my guys did when they were teaching me in the early days. So try and keep stepping up, try and be a, a better person each day and a better school each year. Um, that's that's my goal now, and that's what's keeping me in the sport now. Yeah. So yeah, I know as a um, an outside observer, basically, you know, someone who didn't have an FJC, um, and when you wouldn't even call yours an FJC. Yours is it's a, definitely it's not it's an a FJC. Jump. It's a base jump, a full yeah. base jumping course. Yeah. Yeah. So I was watching your students do things that it literally took me years to figure out or to pick up along the way. You know, so like as I, I wish I had known those things. You know, in my first couple of jumps that you know that I didn't know, and I know Brian got a lot out of you know tagging along and helping with yeah. the course. And that was huge. It's good, and we love having special guests around. Like Feral was the incredible to have as a special guest because he's in Australia. He's the big shark that keeps all the little adolescent sharks mm-hmm. in check. You know, because mm-hmm. he's the he's the guy now, whether he likes it or not. And uh, as rough as he looks and acts, he's the most lovable. Right. nicest guy in the world yeah. total <laughs> sweetheart yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's an incredible guy and, and I know I'm, he'll hear this yes. <laughs> yeah, such a big pussy yeah. <laughs> I've been friends with him since day dot pretty yeah. much and, um, and so he was great to have as a special guest and what we're finding now is we're getting more and more experienced base jumpers coming back and paying for courses so we had two jumpers last year um, who were friends and I offered them free, free courses come and hang out and they uh, two two jumpers last year paid the full course and came they had 500 base jumps each uh we've got another jumper coming back he's got a 500 base jumps he's paying for a full course and um because they see the benefits of what my students are getting mm-hmm. out of it uh, and the true commitment yeah some people just do a course to, to try it we don't really want those people they can go to other courses the other courses are more designed for those people our course is for the pure hardcore guys that want to be base jumpers for real and mm-hmm. go back and open their own jumps and jump their own buildings and all that. And and so now a lot of jumpers are coming through. You know, we'll get a lot of base jumpers that come to our course with 85 jumps, 100 jumps, and, and they get even more out of it um, than, than the new guys because sure. they, we break all their bad habits and stuff. And, and and they actually have some awareness of what's going on. Yes. They don't have the, you know... Well, and they they what they learn is how not aware they were in certain exactly. situations. Yeah. So that's a huge one. And now... But, also, I always practice what I preach. So I will always do what I tell my students to do. So if, if I make them jump from the handrail, I'll jump from the handrail. Like, so to show them that this is all of us. And, um, and I also, you know, with the ethics side of things, um, we talk about all that. So we're going to start doing some charity work as well. Sam's already doing it, Sam Hardy. Mm-hmm. 
who's our head instructor. He's already doing charity work. So we're putting back into the, the community of charity work as well. Um, we're also, I've gone back into skydiving to show that it's never too late to learn new things. Same with the wingsuit tunnel. Um, you can only practice what you preach, you know. Oh, so preach what you practice, you know. <laughs> you, I don't believe in, you know, we'll come out and do every jump with the students, pretty much. Um, and and I think you've got you to be doing it with them all the time. One, it gives them that sense of, of calm out there, knowing you're there, and you can debrief them straight away. Um, and you can talk to them about just the little things that pop up. Oh, we've written nearly everything in the syllabus now, but there's so many life's experiences that pop up through my jumping that will happen in that moment at that time for that person, not every course, that you can, you're there with them telling them that, that, that thing. And you can't, you can't beat experience. That's why the sport's going so well. So, so that's, that's where I really get a kick out of that. And at the end, seeing the, the, the students go out for their consolidation jump on their own or banging a four-way out on their last jump and, and then seeing them hang around um, for a couple of weeks later and just the froth that they get and the team that camaraderie they build with their, their group of the school and even the other day a French guy Paul old student he already had 100 jumps I think he came back and he's he, one of our rules is you can't jump Steckelberg for a year after you do your course and he came back and he'd just done his first uh, ramp jump and he goes I just did my first ramp jump today I said, thank you I, it was one year ago now when I did your course I was like wow you actually listened <laughs> I would have just gone and jumped at you. <laughs> just keep your but, mouth shut but that shows that we're doing the right thing and he was very respectful and, and he's like yeah and I'm going to wait this long now to do this next stage of my jumping and I was like it's so cool come come back on the course come do it with us we'll take you there mm-hmm. you know we're happy to take you there so this is we all had mentors and I still believe in the mentor system but there's just too many jumpers now to have the mentors. And I still need to jump for myself as well. It's, it's, when it stops becoming fun, I'll stop. It's still fun for me to jump outside of the work stuff as well. Um, but there's just too many people to, to be attached to the mentors now. So that's why the courses are becoming so more prominent. But I think it's really important that every course should be a mentor as well. Um, and that, that's a huge thing. And give them the opportunity to always come back and learn. Because in the long run, in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, from a sport point of view they're going to keep the sport open and legal from a selfish point of view I'm going to be 60 years old not know anyone and still be invited to the new events <laughs> yeah. so I'll still be able to keep in the loop in that 20 years time so Ship. from my point of view I still see someone like Rick Harrison that's still there and I still keep in touch with him every now and again and, and Spacey Tracy and those guys all these amazing pioneers that most of the guys I know about um, they're around and they're still part of the sport and I want to be around in 20 years time when I'm 60 yeah. as well and still jumping and I would hopefully probably step back a bit <laughs> but I still want to be there and still want to be amongst it and I think in, in a selfish way this is a great way for me to do so to have these guys coming up train them how we should have been trained if we had the knowledge um, and create a beautiful family that looks after each other in the future so. awesome bro well thanks for taking the time to uh, sit down with us and do the podcast and uh, no you know being supportive early on and encouraging us to do it yeah, this has been a lot Shaking of fun. Shaking my head at the same time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's That's why this is audio only, so. Yeah. 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 Well, we can we could definitely do more of these. Um, yeah, happy to chat anytime. Yeah. You know, yeah. This would be the point in time where we would say, like, let's get on it. But now I'm saying, like, let's have a cup of tea. And if something comes <laughs> up that you want to talk about, just hit us up. You know, don't don't wait for us to, to ask if you want to sit down because we, it's very portable, as you've seen. So yeah, it's we're cool. trying cool to take system. it with us everywhere we go. Yeah, no worries. So. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate All it. Right. Cool, Thanks. brother. Jeez. This uh, this has been a Base Life podcast. Yeah. Sweet.
All right. If you want to know more about our guests, just check out the show notes. And if you want to give us some feedback or reach out to us, you can hit us at baselife2014 at gmail.com, facebook.com backslash the baselife. And on Instagram, we're at base.life. All right. Thanks.